Hello, welcome back to Metastation for our podcast of uh, on episode 502, The Red Queen. I'm Erin. I am an English professor in Mississippi. I'm Claire. I'm a writer in Portland, Oregon. And we have a special guest with us for this one, um, our good Twitter friend, Crystal, who is a freelance writer who covers The 100. Welcome, Crystal. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me, y'all. Of course. Crystal got this the uh, screeners for the first four episodes. And so she has been so stoked for this episode for like, like <laughs> how many weeks now? Yeah, yeah pretty much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so then we were all like, oh my God, oh my God, this, this episode is going to be amazing. And it is. So yes. we're super excited that you are here and you get to finally scream with other people about something that you've had to have been sitting on forever. <laughs> oh my God. So I think, you know, this is a tough episode to try to, like we were talking about before, to break out into storylines or whatever, because there's just, it's all kind of one tight, single storyline, which is really like part of what makes this episode pretty great, I think. So we decided we're going to, we're going to start with going by characters. And, you know, this is, this is really kind of like, this is Blood Reina's coming out party episode. <laughs> so and it is called the Red Queen, and Octavia is the Red Queen, so it only stands to reason that we should start with Octavia. So uh, let's start with Octavia. Uh, Crystal, do you want to start us off? Sure. I mean, in terms of Octavia in particular, one of the things that worked for me really well was that it took into account everything she's been through mm. yes. and gave us the story of her becoming. I love the hundred. I've loved it since I got into it. But sometimes they literally will just drop a thing and like a whole oh, yeah. idea, <laughs> a whole thing that happened to a person, and it just doesn't really feel like it's been worked in organically. But this is one of the best episodes of the entire show because it took mm-hmm. everything into account. It took such care in how she was brought up, what was part of her upbringing, what she on the ground and then that kind of final snick into place of Jaha giving her the tools to move forward and I just loved it I thought it was a full story for her very earned oh yeah yeah and I you know what the other thing that I loved about this about Octavia especially at the beginning of this episode but I mean even you know really throughout was you know this is an episode that remembered how young she is and I feel like you know we hadn't really taken a moment to, you know, to kind of like reckon with the fact that Octavia at this point, you know, at the, at the beginning of this flashback is like, what, 17? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So like, I really, I appreciated that all those moments throughout where we you're kind of, we were reminded that like, she is so young, you know, she's a 17 year old girl who has been through just unfathomable amounts of trauma in those, you know, short 17 years and especially in the sort of past 12 months. And that even though she won the conclave, she's just like not in a place where she understands even how to lead. She understands what it means. You know, she doesn't, Octavia has never been particularly great about, you know, like knowing what the needs of the crowd are, or even particularly caring, which is partly what, you know, what makes her kind of great is that Octavia is sort of like, she has that really steady moral compass of her own. The other thing about her is that, you know, in those early seasons, she wanted to get away. She was not, not only did she want not want to lead, mm-hmm. she wanted to get yeah. away from these people. You know what I'm saying? She yeah. wanted to be somewhere <laughs> where she didn't have this, like, burden on her. And then she gets the biggest burden of them all. 
It's so weird. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, and and it's I think it's interesting because it's like one of the things, and we can we'll I think loop back to this when we talk more about Jaha, but one of the one of the cool, I think sort of perfect and beautiful coming full circle moments with Octavia in this was like you said, like it's, you know, it's, it's not just that in the early seasons that we see her kind of like running away and wanting to sort of break free from responsibility and burdens, but from sky crew specifically, you know, like from the sky people, from the arc, from that life, like throughout the course of the show, what we've seen. And even I think in, in dial dimerily, you know, like when the setup that becomes this episode, you know, first happened in the conclave, you know, like she says, She's doing this for everybody, for all the clans, for everyone to share. Everyone is the same. But it's like in in her heart, you know what she really means is like the grounders and like Bellamy and her like five friends. <laughs> um, and, and the rest of the art can choke, you know? And- <laughs> What I loved, like that, like that coming full circle and it coming from Jaha in that beautiful moment of her not just sort of claiming the mantle, not just that she's no longer running from responsibility. She's like, fine, I will take this now, put it on. But the people that she was running from, from the moment that she stepped out of that drop ship, which was basically everybody Sky Crew except her brother, mm-hmm. you know, she had to be reminded like, we also belong to you. Like, we also are your people. It's not like all of my other actual people and then like, you guys, I guess. You're like, if we're all equal, then we're all equal. Yeah. Including the people that you've been like, holding all this anger and resentment towards because of your upbringing. And it coming from Jaha, who like played an active role in why she felt like that and why she was raised like that and how she became so traumatized. And him being in some way kind of the only person who could say to her, like, at a certain point, you have to accept that we are your people, you are our people, you know, I love that kind of full circle the way everyone's history and all of the different Octavias that she's been in some way kind of coalesced into this Octavia in a, in a way I think that's different from, you know, we don't know a lot about time jump Octavia. And I think we can come back to this sort of the future version of her at the end, but the Octavia that she is at the end of this episode, you know, merges like all the different people who've influenced her and all of the different, you know, like Bellamy's so tied into it because it came from the book. You know, like all of these different facets of of the myriad Octavias coalescing into her leading the only way that somebody like Octavia could become a leader. And it reminded me of like, you know, this, this sounds facetious and I don't mean it to, but like, you know, that old saying people always have about, about politicians where it's like some politicians are really good at campaigning and then some are really good at governing and oh, it's yeah. not necessarily the same yeah, yeah person yeah and like, mm-hmm. like some people are really good at like running for office and then they get there and like well i'm the president what the fuck do i do now and then some people who would be like an amazing president are are not the kind of person who could ever like you know make it through a partisan primary or whatever so i was thinking about that a little bit with octavia too like like the way that she feels like I, okay i did it like i got us the bunker i secured our yep. responsibility now i want to just go play with miller <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, that was the best fucking scene. Can we talk I about was, that? That was so amazing. happy. <laughs> I was so happy. First of all, the first 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 shot is the we will rise thing. Yeah. And then you pan over and you see the delinquents, the delinquents that are left sparring. I was like, can I watch this on a 10 hour loop? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> let, them, let them be happy. Like, let them have like five minutes of fun, Indra. We're coming in. <laughs> 
Mom, come on. <laughs> she, oh my God, she was such a mom. And and they were being such brats. She was like, fine, I'll put on my cape and go be Hedda, whatever. <laughs> but like, I love, and I really, and I totally, I have more thoughts on Miller. We can come back to him later. But I was hoping, since like they're the only two delinquents in this entire slice of the world, I was like, they've got to give us and Octavia Miller, like some kind of a relationship. Like it would make no sense for them to be in, you know, separate unconnected storylines. They've got to sort of kind of come together. But I wasn't expecting it to be in that kind of a like, and like you were saying, like setting us up to remember that like she's still a teenager yeah. and like she's stuck with all these people who are strangers and doesn't have a lot of friends that knew her from those earlier sort of more carefree days. And so I just really, I I liked the idea of them setting up that Miller could be the person for her, even though like their relationship did not get off to an auspicious beginning. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it kind of makes me like, I, I want a headcanon that like, you know, because Miller started out, he was sort of like Bellamy's right hand guy. So there's a part of me that's sort of like, did Miller sort of step in as like Octavia's surrogate big brother since Bellamy can't be there? And I can totally see him doing that mm-hmm. like for Bellamy. And also I can see Octavia sort of like, you know, like I feel like Octavia, like she doesn't really know what to do without a big brother, you know, like she's, she obviously like misses Bellamy so much. So there's like, there's like a part of me that wants to just sort of like fill out that scene was just thinking like, they are totally like sibling bonding, you know, like he's her new big brother, you know, like she's his, his sort of sort of surrogate little sister. And they're just like roughhousing because like, you know, like that first like 46 days in the bunker had to be so boring, you know, like I just, (laughs) just like how boring it is. (laughs) It's like palpable how boring it is for Octavia to be, the Oslea or whatever she is, those first, you know, like just her sulking at that like council table while they bitch about like <laughs> swiping blankets was just yeah, like, like, give the blankets back. Next. <laughs> like, what? My like, God. <laughs> <laughs> like, Jesus, you guys. <laughs> you did not need me for this. Yeah, exactly. Like, why are we even talking about this? You interrupted my sparring session with Miller for this. <laughs> Well, and that's what I what I liked about the Miller scene and then also her little exchange with Nyla with the book. It was just it was this really kind of heartbreaking reminder that like Octavia doesn't have like hardly any friends. You know, like yeah. she has she's re- she's a relationship with Indra, but they're not friends. Like it's a very different kind of dynamic than that, you know? And and there's people that she knows, you know, she knows Jackson, she knows Kane and Abby, but like they're not friends either and like Nyla and Miller are the two people that she's had I mean any kind of moments with in you know in the past where there was any kind of a connection that you could call friendship and what I liked in this episode was not just that they were like both present and like you know solid like on her team but also that they both had moments that were indirectly kind of looped around Bellamy yes like Nyla getting her the book like here is a thing that made me think of you because it made me think of your brother and then Miller being a person who is like the only guy left from that point in her life it was subtle, like it wasn't like heavy handed, you know, and beating over the head with it. But it was like the two people that she feels like she can kind of like relax and breathe around a little bit are the two people who like get what Bellamy means to her. Absolutely. On yeah. Some level, yeah. You know, mm-hmm. 
I think with Miller too, I, okay, so I have two comments to that. The Miller connection with Bellamy is real. I hadn't even thought about that fully. Um, so I'm glad you brought that up. But the other piece was in that sparring, it's like she's sharing a bit of herself with him. Mm-hmm. That, like that, the things that are important to her, like back in season one, Miller never took any interest in learning how to uh, spar. You know, like they never had that kind of relationship. But now this is a new day. This They're about to embark on a life together and she wants to make that connection. So I really, really love that. Yeah. And and she says it to Nyla too. She tells her like we're gonna spar later, right? Like that's how Octavia. Oh, yeah. like, that's that's her like <laughs> quality time with her friends. You know, yeah. that she's like I'm gonna teach you how to fight. <laughs> I like to think, however, that that at least that the that we're gonna spar later to Nyla was at least partly a double entendre. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> if we don't get a shot of that fight and it's not in any way homoerotic, I quit. <laughs> yeah, seriously. <laughs> you know, the other thing that I'm just thinking of, speaking of, of that Miller moment, that is a nice little look into her mental state is I feel like, doesn't it feel like the fact that she's so relaxed and, and comfortable and like happy around Miller, like it says something about moving past her Lincoln grief in some way. Like it feels like a step of like emotional progress because like Miller, like their first relationship, like he's totally hardwired into that whole traumatic part of her early, their relationship where like he and Bellamy had Lincoln tied up and were, you know, torturing him. And well, he was on the, on the Kane rebel squad in season three. So I guess that might've helped, but that's true. Yeah, that he did. He helped. He was on the team to like help save him. But it just it felt like, you know, like Lincoln wasn't like mentioned textually, but it was sort of yeah. a nice like I was happy for both of them that it was like you've you've definitively put behind you any kind of Lincoln related animosity. And now you can like be each other's like last delinquent buddy down here. So I was like, I'm just I'm rooting for those crazy kids. <laughs> And I think it's like, you know, it, I, I loved it that at the end, Miller was, you know, still one of Octavia's right yep. hand. Yes. Oh, my God. Guys. Badass, like, Centurion Miller. I was like, I want yeah. that backstory. Like, yeah, no kidding. I have more to say about this, but I have to wait until after uh, the fourth episode. <laughs> Ooh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> Before we move on from Miller, it's just such a little oh, thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah, no, totally. Yeah. The Miller piece, when they had to break up and it was time for Aslia to go do her job, <laughs> um, <laughs> it was like Miller and Indra almost shared this moment where it was kind of like she was saying, like, you know, can you give us a minute? And he was, it was, there was like a moment. There was a yeah. moment on screen. I just wanted to know what y'all interpreted that moment as. I've actually been. This relationship that I've been thinking about a little, even before the episode, and hoping we would get just sort of moments of connection between them because they felt very clearly they're sort of positioned together on the poster. And we've seen at least one or two BTS pictures of like <laughs> Miller in his like sexy new time jump, like grounder sky fusion <laughs> ensemble that everybody now has. Like everyone's rocking leather coats. And I can't remember when. I think it was like a few months ago that there was like a picture that that came out that had the two of them together that immediately planted in my mind, like, Oh my God, like a, a relationship pairing that I never would have thought that I needed. And now I like need like air is yeah. Miller 
being Indra's right hand as Indra is Octavia's. So that little moment to me, that sort of little unspoken thing, what I liked about it was it felt like it might be potentially shorthanding a little bit, just a way of signaling to us that already these kind of family dynamics are building and that they're beginning to include Miller a little bit. You know, like, is he and Indra, have they interacted at all really significantly up until this season? Like, I'm trying to remember. I don't think yeah, so. I can't think of a, a, a circumstance where they would. Yeah. They might have yeah. been, like, like in room t- together. Like, they might have been, like, in a large group thing. But they've never had, like, a storyline together. And then, like, we mentioned it, you know, we see him at the end where he's, like, Octavia's, you know, centurion, like, right-hand guy. So I like the idea that we have, you know, this dynamic building with Octavia at the center and all of her sort of little cohort of family advisor people that includes Indra and Gaia and Kara and Ethan, interestingly, who will come to later. But I like I felt like right at the beginning, the sparring scene and the kind of dynamics between the three of them, I guess what I took from that was that Miller is already even that early being sort of folded in to that like. It's like this group of like murder ladies and Miller, which is wonderful. <laughs> which, you know what? It makes me like really, I hadn't really thought about it in that way that much. Cause I, I mean, I, I sort of like read that moment maybe a little bit as a kind of like already you have sort of Miller and Indra as people who recognize that, you know, they're sort of like managing Octavia's emotions a little bit, but like, you know, sort of in a, sort of in a like co-parenting or almost, I mean, it's almost yeah, like, yeah. it's almost like, you know, Aurora and Bellamy again, except for it's Indra and Miller, you know, but now I'm getting listening to what you said, Claire, I'm getting really emotional because like Miller just lost his dad in Pryasaya, you know, like we know that his dad sacrificed his chance even to be chosen for Nate, um, which is just like one of the most heartbreaking things in in the chosen because like, I just, I love dad Miller so much and I love his relationship with his son, but it, it just made me think like, so he just lost, you know, his parent. And so it makes me wonder if there's a, isn't a little sort of bit of like, did Indra kind of like adopt him, you know, a little bit. Like, yeah. 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 That was kind of how it pinged me too, because it felt like they had that kind of like that, that sort of silent unspoken communication where it was sort of like, Oh, so these are people who it seems like maybe were, were being gently guided to think like they've, they've spent some time together. Like yeah. they're, they're they're in this sort of cohort together and you know and i think it's it is i think high time to adopt a murder son to join her battalion of murder daughters you know so i'm i'm for it and and it's a you know one of the things that i love about this show and how how rich and deep and diverse its ensemble is like one of the things that's really cool that you can do when you have a cast this size is you can just kind of shuffle the deck and pluck out a completely yeah. new pairing yeah. that brings out new sides of everybody. And and I think that in a lot of ways, you know, the introduction of just sort of like a handful of new characters in each of these storylines, you know, is bringing out, you know, we saw what Kara did here. We have Maddie in the other story. But even just taking these characters that we've like known and loved and lived with for a really long time and being like, hey... Imori and Raven have never done much together or like, Hey, Indra and Miller, like, let's, yep. let's see what happens. You mm-hmm. know, I love that. And I, I was excited just to sort of feel like between the sparring, I think it's, you know, I think it's significant that like the first scene that we see of somebody, particularly the first scene in a season, I think is really important, you know? And so I think <laughs> that this episode kicking off with, Miller and Octavia sparring and then Miller at her side at the end made me feel like 
hopeful in my Miller loving heart that he's going to get to play a really significant role in Octavia's whole journey, in her leadership, in her ruling, like as one of her kind of key advisors. And so I'm excited to see him get more to do. But I think that positioning of him with Indra, like you said, like he just lost a parent. Indra is in a really unique way, an instinctively parental figure, even Mm -hmm. though she's not in any way what you'd call like conventionally maternal. Yeah. But she kind of like adopts stray puppies and is like, I'm going to teach you how to fix your shit. Yeah, seriously, (laughs) she does. Like she's, she's she's, like, she took one look at, um, at Octavia's whack little fighting style. It's together. This is a mess, girl. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, you, like you've got the desire, you have the spirit, but we got to work on technique. Woo. Exactly. <laughs> like, she's almost, she's like the perfect, like, get a grip mom. You know, she's just yeah. sort of yeah. like, oh, child, you are a mess. We are going to get you straightened out. <laughs> and without it, without in any way, like diminishing the depth and scope of Adina's acting, yeah, there is yeah. a lot, I think, Adina Porter in Indra. <laughs> like, like the way Adina, like, the way Adina is with the fandom and like, and you know, the little sort of pictures say, from her on Twitter, like how she is like parenting her own kids. I'm like, yeah, like she would be exactly that get a grip friend in real life. <laughs> I, I want to like, if we ever have Adina on the podcast, which like God willing someday we will, because that would be amazing. I would love to ask her like, how much Indra is there in your Twitter persona? You know, like, right, right. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like how much of your... She is so like fun. Like she just, I've seen her in interviews and she's very bubbly and fun, but like, like you said on Twitter, like she, she's bubbly and fun, but she, she will give you your, like you've stepped over a line and you need to stop right now. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. very clear. She is like the ultimate Twitter mom. You know, she's very much sort of like, okay, we can have fun, but you go, you don't get to jump on the bed, you know, like. exactly. And like, and you're, and you're never gonna get her to tell you like which of her children she loves the most. She's exactly. like, that's a dumb question. Nope, not I'm not gonna answer that. <laughs> oh, oh god, I love her. Speaking of Adina on Twitter and also parent feels, there was a one point when the East Coast airing was happening last night when Adina tweeted out like something like, you know, everybody give Tati Gabrielle more love. And I was just like, oh my God, I love you so much. <laughs> she mentioned at Unity Days and actually, and Jared had said this to us too about, I can't remember his name, who played his dad, that they felt like they sort of immediately kind of fell into this parental relationship. And Tati was like talking about how she felt like, like Adina was just like a mentor to her. I think that their, their parent-child relationship on screen, like, it really seemed like Tati was like, no, like, that's just, like, how she is with me as a person. Like, she felt so guided and supported and, you know, and then safe to kind of take all these emotional risks. And Jared told us in, our, in the meet and greet that we did with him at the first Unity Days, he and, and the actor who played Dad Miller, they knew each other before the show. He was one of the first people that Jared met when he moved to Vancouver and was studying acting they like played basketball together at the Y or something like that they like had mutual friends and they were in like some pickup basketball game together and so he would like so Jared would like go over to his house and have dinner with him and his wife and kids and he would like give Jared like acting mentorship and I just love that like I, and I feel like you can see those kind of moments of connection like coming out on screen and those like parental relationships where you're like this sense of closeness they have like feels so authentic but I just love how much Adina and Tati like love each other Oh, you too. So, okay. So, uh, <laughs> welcome to meditation where we just get sidetracked by everyone that we love. <laughs> <laughs> I think we touched on Nyla a little bit before, but do we want to 
talk more about that moment with the the book? I do. And it, I like the part where she does the little bow and she's, you know, like, hi, you know, <laughs> I, slay, I, I slay or whatever. It embarrassed, like, she's giving Octavia a little bit of shit, but like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like you can see that banter, which you were talking about, like, they're friends. Like, they, yeah, she has, yeah. there's something so, so sweet about that. They're yeah, friends. I was yeah. like, more friends for Octavia. And, and I like that Nyla, like, that they've reached a place where, where Nyla can sort of rib her a little and like bring some levity. Like, I think that's something that Nyla really brings, I think to everyone that she kind of comes in contact with is like, she's so grounded and she's so like, has her shit together. She's good at like deflating tension from circumstances, you know, so she can be like, like you said, like make a sort of like, Oh, your majesty kind of jokes to Octavia. <laughs> Octavia is like, yeah, yeah. Very funny. <laughs> but that little comment just at that exact right moment, like I think helps her feel a little bit more like grounded for what she has to do next. The book moment I liked a lot. What I liked about the two moments of, of Octavia in this episode, getting to be with friends, getting to have a moment of emotional closeness and just kind of like relaxing and being able to kind of take off the persona of whatever sort of version of a ruler she's portraying in the moment is that both of those moments hinge in some kind of indirect way around Bellamy. When Nyla gives her that book, even knowing like, oh, a gladiatorial fighting pit is coming in this episode, I didn't, maybe I'm like super dumb, but like I didn't actually immediately connect that to the book until it was like, oh, that's what Selena meant in her review when she was like, in a way, this is all Nyla's fault. And we were like, what does that mean? What did Nyla do? <laughs> like of all of Selena's little teasers, that was one where we were all like, wait, what? Like, so then it was like, ah, yes. Okay. So in a way, I, I see where that was going. So I, I liked that it was a way of planting Bellamy and that slice of Octavia's childhood and history back into her storyline of that key moment. Like we've seen that kind of the mythology thing. We've seen it like loop back around in Bellamy's story before, mm -hmm. but we haven't really seen it in the same way. We've seen it as a way that like he reaches out to her metaphors. He uses with her, um, the stories that he reads to her, but like as a way for Octavia, who knows she's stuck for five years without her brother to feel a sense of connection to him. I really liked, I think just in terms of, of it being Ovid's metamorphoses, I think it's a nice way of sort of setting up that it's, you know, it's the beginning of Octavia's metamorphosis. I think it ties in in a kind of subtle, nice way with the whole, whole like imagery of her from early seasons kind of connected to butterflies, which mm -hmm. are sort of the creature that we think of first when we think of a creature that metamorphoses, <laughs> metamorphoses or whatever. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so I don't know a lot about like, the history of Metamorphoses, most of my knowledge of the story of it comes from Mary Zimmerman's play Metamorphoses, which came out about maybe a little over 10 years ago. It is sort of iconic as a piece of contemporary theater because the entire story takes place in a pool of water. Like mm -hmm. you sort of turn your whole set into a essentially a swimming pool. And, yeah. and so it's an adaptation of, I think, maybe 10 or 12 different myths pulled from that story that are all set in and around water. And Echo and Narcissus, a lot of the sort of the really iconic origin story Greek myths that, that come to us from Ovid and um, are sort of the centerpiece of this play. So I was sort of thinking about it a lot just in terms of like the mythology of Greek and Roman like origin stories. You know, how did some facet of the world come to be? And it's because the gods turned a thing into another thing. So for me, it sort of planted like 
how is this book going to sort of become the foundation of who Octavia becomes? And so drawing that sort of thread from the book being the place where she kind of gets the idea for what becomes her new mode of justice and then becoming the person who was delivering that new mode of justice turns her into this sort of almost unrecognizable person who appears kind of plucked straight from ancient Rome, you know, um, <laughs> I thought it was interesting. So I'm hopeful slash wondering if when we come back to the bunker story, are we going to sort of pick right back up here and continue on in the sort of present day, or will there be more of a chance to kind of dig into what that metamorphosis looked like. And I'm kind of okay with it if we don't necessarily, only because like like the structure of Ovid's stories is just kind of like somebody like waves a magic wand and it's like, boop, now you're a plant. You know, so like in some way, like, like structurally, like it doesn't not fit that suddenly we're kind of like, boop, now you're sitting up on this throne and you're doing this total Caesar Augustus. Yes, okay, this guy gets to live and then the crowd goes crazy. In terms of Octavia's metamorphosis, I got everything that I needed over the course of this episode to get to the place where she ends it right before the time jump. Like every single one of those beats was like so considered and pulled from all these different parts of her history. And then we get the kind of big surprise twist. And I just sort of wonder if more of those blanks will sort of be filled in. And are we going to sort of get more of those beats along the way? I hadn't read Metamorphoses since I think grad school at some point Mm. when I was still in courses. So it'd been a few years. So I went back and I reviewed the what was in each chapter. And, um, you know, there's like, the story is all about sort of transformation, but then also the sort of arc of the full book. And I, you know, who knows how much is, how much of the stuff is actually in the writer's head when they kind of allude right. to this, but it starts with the first chapter. It starts with origin myths. Roman the- mythology basically has their own sort of like version of Noah kind of where the gods wipe out all of humanity except for one man um, named Deucalion and his wife and family. And then they basically like tell Deucalion, like, okay, like you have to like tear open the earth. You have to rip up the, the stones and the mud in order to keep surviving. And so what happens in the myth, I think the, the metamorphosis part of that myth is that as Deucalion is like ripping stones and mud up from the, as, as he's like ripping open the belly of the earth, you know, and ripping up this dirt and stones and throwing them behind him, when the clods hit the earth behind him, they turn into people. So it's kind of interesting. I mean, if you think about just like within the arc of this episode, this is this is like a sort of foundation myth, kind of like this is the foundation story for mm-hmm. what's happening in the bunker. So the fact that Ovid starts with a kind of like a story in which everyone's wiped out except for a few people and then they have to kind of start over, you know, that seems mm-hmm. maybe thematically sort of fitting. And that could arguably fit with the entire season too in a, in a kind of like broader way. And then I think, interestingly, a lot of the stories through the middle of Metamorphoses are love stories. Mm-hmm. And, you know, of all different kinds of like, uh, there's a version of Orpheus and Eurydice in there. Yeah. And like you said, Narcissus and Echo and, you know, a whole bunch of them. So, so a lot of these stories of transformation are stories of sort of transformations driven by love or desire, which I think is kind of like interesting thread as well. In this episode, particularly looking at Cabby, you know, like Cain and Abby, and mm-hmm. kind of, but then also Miller and Jackson. And Jackson too. Yeah. yeah. There's like a whole sort of thread of love stories running through this. And, and like, it was, well, this is one of those things that, 
I think it's true in like a lot of literature. It's certainly true in a lot of Roman literature that like the sort of idea of like creation and dis- destruction, you know, like passion of love and the passion of war are sort of tied together. You know, the, these two, these are two sort of forces that you kind of can't separate. So, so, you know, I think maybe thematically thinking about the ways in which like that might kind of fit in this episode in terms of the ways in which this is the kind of all of the sort of horror and destruction that's happening in this, you know, in part it's about starvation or survival, but then in part it's also about, it's about love, you know, it's like, mm-hmm. like Cain and Abby, the entire thing is about, so they're sort of fighting, you know, over like, ultimately it's like, I loved you too much to let you die is like the source of the fight. Jackson's kind of story is about, it's a, like, a little bit of a story about like what Jackson is sort of able to make himself do in the name of love you know, even Jaha, I think, in like a kind of different way, mm-hmm. you know, like we see his story winds up being very much about love in a couple different ways, you know, like his family and what he sacrificed, you know, in terms of his love for his people. So I think that that is sort of like a broad way in which that might fit. And then the ending, and I think a couple of people I know, like Selena mentioned this on Twitter, uh, Twitter, <laughs> Twitter, <laughs> uh, <laughs> on the Twitter, um, as the kids <laughs> call it. Um, and like, there's been some discussion of this. The last chapter of Metamorphoses, and I think this is definitely, you know, like relevant, is the one in which Ovid, you know, like sort of creates the myth of Caesar as a god, specifically mm-hmm. Julius Caesar. And so when Ovid was writing, Ovid wasn't born until after Julius Caesar was already dead, I think, or like right around, right around the same time anyway. So like by the time he was writing, uh, Julius Caesar had died. Augustus was Julius's sort of like, heir, his chosen heir, but there was a civil war after Julius died. There was like one civil war that Julius started and then Julius died. And then there was another civil war between the Senate and Augustus and Augustus won. And so Augustus is really, was really the start of the Roman empire. He was the first real emperor and he was the one who kind of like, he won that war. And then he sort of like all of the kind of like the power of the emperor and the sort of like deification of emperors, the codification of power around the sort of like cult of the emperor sort of thing that all happened with Augustus and, and the kind of like start of that mythologizing was in Ovid. And that seems like really definitely very spot on with, you know, what's Mm -hmm. happening with Octavia and with like, both in terms of like, the ways that like we see that by the end of the episode, you know, in the flat, you know, we flash back forward to the kind of six years later present moment that she's been sort of like, there's a cult around her. She's been kind of like mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. deified a little bit, like a mutated or, or metamorphosed, <laughs> if you will, version of the commander. She's not a commander. She's a new kind of thing, but it's related. And then also in terms of, you know, sort of tying back to Maddie's hero worship of her, you know, where we sort of Mm -hmm. like, you get these stories of her triumphs that have kind of taken on a life of their own. And like these stories, I think like one thing that in Maddie's case, it's like a little bit more, you know, seemingly innocent because like Octavia is just someone that she looks up to, you know, she identifies with. And I think in the bunker with we see with like, particularly with Gaia, the way that Gaia is so very aware and savvy about recognizing that, you know, the ways that like people need, they need images, they need stories, you know, they need, they need a kind of like pageantry, they need sort of like, something larger than life to hook onto, so that the the kind of like mythology of Octavia takes on its own life in the bunker in an interesting way. I feel like Indra understands the utility of these stories. She understands, yeah, yeah. 
at this point, like she, when we first meet, um, when we first meet Indra, she was definitely a religious person. She was definitely someone that was of the tradition and believed in it. Yeah, um, yeah. not to the extent of Gaia, not even maybe to the extent, um, fully of Echo. Cause Echo's another character that was very, seemed very, very like stuck in tradition and religion, mm-hmm. but Indra was that. And then slowly but surely she starts to question. And so right now I feel like she's going through the motions of belief and, and mm-hmm. almost to the point where she's over it. Like she, she's over it as something for her, but she understands its utility in, in creating um, structure for all the people around them. So I feel like she's using it in that way. Whereas Gaia, Gaia is a true believer, but mm-hmm. in this way that with a lot of priests and a lot of clergy, they say, oh, I've, I've thought of this new way that yes. we forfeit. And yeah. I, this just as much a second ago, I believe in this. Now I believe this with just as much fervor. Yeah. So like, you know what I'm saying? So I think they're all in difference. And then, and Octavia is just trying to maintain, like, yeah. she's just like, I don't know what the hell is going on. Yeah. <laughs> she's like, I just need to like, I'm just trying to make sure that everybody doesn't kill each other or if they yeah. do, it's in a or controlled me. environment or me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, I think that's, I think that's a really good way of, of like a really good distinction. Cause I think, you know, you see Indra sort of like, she understands that the like iconography of the commanders is still an important symbol that people latch onto. So she wants Octavia to kind of like continue to sort of perform that. And Guy is kind of like, you're right. Like Guy is like more savvy in terms of like, okay, like that sort of system of belief is defunct now, but instead of, but like, she's kind of more able to be like, she needs to believe she's going to like, she's going to transform and metamorphose the sort Mm -hmm. of like the form and the basis of her belief to fit this new moment, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and it's really kind of wonderfully multi-layered and, and delightful that that's happening in Cadigan's bunker, which is the origin story of what became that religion and, and cult and iconography and belief system that like guys kind of going back to the source you know, inside the place where that idea was kind of born. And so she's sort of reinventing it in her own, you know, in her yeah. own way. And I also, I, I fucking love, okay. So like the, the writer's room had tweeted out, there's like posters on the yeah. wall that yeah. have those slogans, you know, like blood must have blood and, and your fight is over. Yeah. Like, so just, you know, which I was just like, I'm so happy. I, I, I love that we're sort of like getting and we're getting some sort of like origin for that culture. But like, I also like considering that it came from Bill Cadigan, you know, like this Mm -hmm. shyster dude who, you know, like (laughs) built people out of their money and then locked them in that other fake bunker and they all died. And like, I'm sure he murdered Becca. You know, I'm, I will be sure of that until the moment (laughs) that like, Canon contradicts uh, it, and uh-huh. even then, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, like he's just like he's like an he's like a shitty guy, like he's an evil guy, and <laughs> so I love that it's like Gaia, you know, like I love that it's these who's kind of coming along and being like, I'm gonna make this work for me, you know, like I'm going to remake this in our image, mm. kind of like re, you know, seizing control of this sort of system of belief and reforging it, even as it is like, it's chilling because I mean, we don't know much about it other than this just sort of like fight club aspect for right now. But it like, it seems, it seems very chilling. The shift of power, you know, the like center of power shifting over to Gaia. I'm just sort of like, I'm super into it. 
<laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, well, yeah. I, one thing I think is an interesting, a structural kind of counterpoint to Eden, which I think is really interesting, is that, you know, in, in Eden, myth and story are are presented as things that are and and again art like the way we talked about you know the Maya's iPod and the drawings are are sort of presented as like creative humanizing forces and I think what's interesting here is like the juxtaposition of like the book as the kind of origin story for this dark path into violence and destruction as kind of a counterweight to the way that art and works of creativity in the episode that we just saw are sort of, you know, for, for Clark, they become this tether for Maddie. They become this, this way of, of understanding this world that she kind of only knows her story. So I think, and this was clear, I mean, from the sizzle reel when they started releasing episode titles that it was very much going to be a season that's about the power of story and looking at the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves, the stories that we tell about each other, how those stories evolve, how they can blind us to the real things that are happening. But I thought it was interesting that this early, that only sort of two episodes in, we have a real kind of opposite view of, you know, the book as a story that becomes the first step towards this really dark path. And for Clark, her drawings become sort of a starting point for this really beautiful relationship, mm-hmm. you know, and it makes me feel like, okay, so we're, we're setting up that this is something that everyone at some point is going to sort of be interrogating. And the myth of Octavia was even in the previous episode before we had really seen her was very much present, I think in that Maddie stuff. But I like that it started with Nyla giving her a book. It starts with a, with a work of an artist's creation and it does the exact opposite thing. That's actually I think one thing that I hadn't really fully like thought about before we were talking about this, but that I think this episode does really quite brilliantly from top to bottom is how tightly intertwined life and death and creation and destruction are with each other. Like this Mm -hmm. is really a situation where you literally cannot have life without death, right? You cannot have life in that bunker if some people don't die. You can't. If everybody lives right now, it means they all die later. So like life and death in that literal zero sum game of survival, you cannot disentangle those two things. Life means death and death means life. But we get that sort of like theme and that that intertwining of these things is worked so tightly throughout every facet of the stories. I mean, like I said, like that's an aspect of so many of the stories in Ovid, you know, in Metamorphoses and, and also in the ways of that love as a force that binds people together. But that can be creative and destructive that is necessary for creation, but also can create destruction. But then also even when you think about Gaia, when you think about religion and what sort of belief means, I think it's really fascinating too with Gaia and with this cult around Octavia in that on the one hand, you can look at at it as a kind of like death cult insofar as, so what we've seen mostly revolves around these kind of ritualistic gladiatorial battles, you know, and Octavia is the ultimate arbiter of life and death. But at the same time, at the heart of that, again, it's all about life. Mm-hmm. This is a kind of like ritual of death that guarantees continued life. And it's a ritual that, uh, you know, it's like a, it's a sort of horrifically violent ritual that guarantees, that sort of contains violence in a way that means that everybody else can live theoretically mm-hmm. more or less peacefully the rest of the time. And mm-hmm. I think that's something that Gaia deeply recognizes. That's the kind of like having the belief in that kind of leader, that kind of belief, true belief is what sort 
sort of binds a people together. The love or sort of affiliation with that leader binds those people together in a way that keeps the peace. Like I think she completely, she sort of understands that on a level I think. Indra doesn't quite, you know, like maybe like you were saying, Crystal, because she's a little bit disenchanted. She sees it as like iconography. She sees it as pragmatism. And Gaia really mm-hmm. understands the sort of emotional component of it. And I think the other person who really thoroughly, deeply understands that is Jaha. Yeah, Gaia and always and has. Jaha parallels were really strong in this episode in ways that were very surprising to me. Like Gaia and Jaha were the two people who I think saw the most clearly what does she actually have to do to present herself as a leader that these people will follow. Yeah. You know, and and that Indra was coming at it from a very different perspective and what Octavia herself wanted was very different, but Gaia and Jaha like got it like immediately. And that was really paralleling those two because they come at it from totally different perspectives. Jaha is like here's what I had to do to like hold on to power back when I was person who had power and Gaia is like you know here's how like you know this culture in which I am deeply embedded how power is presented and transferred but the end result is the same which is basically like there's an element of performative leadership that's required in order to receive the respect and deference due to you as a real leader that will allow you to actually lead. Yeah and I also I think with Gaia I think it's tempered with this idea of this is who we are like mm-hmm. you know Nyla, you, Nyla had lived kind of on the border of Asgata. She's tree crew, but she lived on the border of Asgata in this like post, like this uh, trading mm-hmm. post. Mm-hmm. So she was away from her people. And you get this impression that she's kind of like, you know, kind of like, I just like to chill, man. I'm not really into all the, you know, I'm not really into all the really deep, important rituals of being tree crew or whatever. Yeah, like, yeah. She understands it, but, she, but that's not her go, that's not her go-to place. That's not where she goes for comfort. And so then that's when she's saying, like Nyla is kind of like, it's going to break it's gonna all hell is gonna break loose when it breaks loose it goes fast and for Gaia she's like this isn't hell this is us like well, this is, yeah. you know she and she understands it and it's like one thing about Gaia that from the moment I met her or when, from the moment she came on the screen I was just enchanted with her I thought she's obviously she's really really beautiful mm-hmm. her voice is really soothing and all those things she has all the trappings of something that'll draw you in mm-hmm. but the things she's saying are terrifying <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know, yeah these blood rights are important. Wear the blood of your enemies as your armor. armor. It's like, what? (laughs) She's so so sweet and she's so sincere and it's like, if you you weren't listening to the words that she was saying, you're like, oh, what is cinnamon roll? And then you're like, wait, what? (laughs) What? What? She's like, paint your cinnamon rolls in blood. Well, and, and that's something that we've talked about on the podcast before that I, this show can be really sort of hit or miss in how it handles it. But I'm really interested in how we get that sort of explored this season is the idea of how the show as a whole depicts the concept of faith and like religion as a sort of element of that, but faith as a concept, you know, above and beyond that. And it's, you know, with the grounder religion and grounder mythology in previous seasons, it's been sort of very hit or miss in a way where it's sort of the like, you know, juxtaposing of like, you can't believe these things and also believe in science, like the sort of that kind of weird. So there's been times where I'm sort of like, but what I like about but the role it feels like Gaia is stepping into and particularly all these sort of subtle little juxtapositions of Gaia and Cadigan and that this is all happening sort of like under under Cadigan's roof is I'm intrigued at the sincerity of her belief and getting to kind of unpack how she thinks and why she believes the things that she believes and this deep sort of like terrifyingly fervent zealot perspective that she has on her religion and her 
tradition and culture as sort of guiding forces in her life, I feel like there's a lot to mine there that we've really sort of just kind of up until this point really danced around with her, you know, and what was cool, I thought about this episode was for me, and I don't know if you guys felt like this, for me, it totally recontextualized my mental picture of how Gaia and Indra's estrangement had taken place. I sort of felt like, I guess my sense of it from before, from the previous season was it was like, okay, so Indra wants her daughter to be a warrior. Her daughter doesn't want to be a warrior. She wants to like go to seminary instead. And Indra is like, how dare you not be a warrior? Everyone in her family is warriors. What the hell are you doing? And that and that there was an element of like, I, I maybe this is just me. Like maybe this is how I read it. But like I read it when we met Guy in season four as Indra wanted her daughter to be like a warrior and a fighter. And there was something about Gaia's mystical religious life that Indra thought was a little soft and undignified and like not a worthy cause to dedicate your life to. You know, like like if you know your mom is a military general and you're like, I'm gonna join a convent, and she's like, What? What the fuck? <laughs> you know. And what was really interesting here was it made me sort of wonder: was there more? that story where perhaps Indra identifying fanaticism or zealotry or or even just that kind of really ruthless single-mindedness as traits that Gaia had looked at it and basically was like I don't know how I feel about the person I suspect you'll become if you like take that zealotry and apply it to this mystical religious belief as opposed to applying that to like fighting for tree crew which is how Indra that's been sort of her guiding principle so it just it, it added like just a little a little little touch more like was there more to this than we perhaps were led to believe in why Indra was so like a adamant that she didn't want Gaia to lead the life that Gaia was living and when Gaia made that choice that Indra just like cut that cord so I feel like the more we kind of get to learn about Gaia and about the particularities of her relationship with her mother the more I'm I just it makes me wonder sort of how early on in Gaia's life and in her religious training were bits of this new person we see emerging kind of beginning to come out it's one of the things about this show in general, it's happened to me a couple of times on this show, where I'm enjoying a character and I'm watching and I'm into it, but something new happens and it's almost like a cold glass of water being thrown mm-hmm, in my face. Mm-hmm. Because Gaia, everything leading up to this, she's been, it's already been told, it's already been said. Like, she was the person who presided over the Death Race 2000. Like, she was right. like, you know, going to fight to the death and I'm going to take this blood-drenched, you know, sigils from you. And she had such pride. And again, her voice is so melodic and mm-hmm. she does it with such dignity that yeah, she's like presiding over this blood sport and it's really important to her. So of course, like all this stuff we're learning in episode 502, I was like, oh yeah, this was all told to me before. Like it's not like something new they just sprung Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. But so for some reason, it just hit me in a totally new way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it lands differently. Like I felt like when we met her in season four, she was somebody where I guess maybe this is the shift maybe it was like I felt like when we first met her this is a character whose point of view we're meant to feel is trustworthy and now I'm like oh we're getting a picture of the like Gaia's point of view also has an agenda as much as anybody else's does and she's seeing and so I think it's more like the revelation is we're seeing more of the why of how she became who she became and why she makes these choices and that she's not that she's not a non-part 
partisan character. I mean, like no one in the show is. Yeah. But we're yeah, seeing yeah. now the, the way in which Guy is not. I mean, and it and it reflavors some of that previous stuff. She's more savvy. She thinks about yeah. like uh-huh. so the wheels turn. It's not yeah. just like oh my yeah. faith. It's like there's wheels turning too. There's- yeah, she's not like a mystic. She's like a mystic, but also she's like a public relations lady. I mean, yeah. they're, they're they're dimensionalizing her, you know. And I think like yeah. the remarkable thing to me, I think in this episode with the thing with Guy between Guy and Indra that was a surprise to me that I never would have expected to see is I think Indra was a little afraid of Gaia. I think she is yeah. too. You yeah. Know? And I think, yeah. yeah afraid of, of what, what they were becoming together. Yes, more exactly. Than. Exactly. Yeah. And, and the ways that and the ways that sort of like she could see the energy between Gaia and Octavia and the way it was becoming something that Indra felt like she was losing control of a little bit, you know? Yeah. And I think and you could sort of see like you could see that register on her face because Adina Porter is amazing and you know. But the other thing about Gaia though I think that is really interesting and again it's one of those things that makes her as a character so sort of like that fascinating mix of chilling and yet also bizarrely like a terrifying character that you want to snuggle up against in like, yeah. a weird way you know like I have the most confusing feelings about Gaia <laughs> like I'm afraid of you but I also want to hug you but <laughs> but I think so like I think oh, uh, there's a key moment at the end where they're watching the gladiator battles or whatever and you see Ethan you know who's now the novitiate yeah 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 rattling like like reacting with the rest of the crowd sort of like rattling the chains and Gaia stops him and says Ethan novitiates don't celebrate death and I think like that's a key sort of moment of like Gaia is not bloodthirsty she wasn't like sort of you know presiding over the blood sports either before the prime fire or after because she just gets off on violence you know I think I think like what it shows is on the one hand it shows like she does have a deep reverence for life but the chilling part of it is that in like this like amazing but almost disturbing way she can detach from it and watch it as ritual and symbol in a way that's way more dispassionate than other people. You know, like it's real, it's death, it's important, but also it's ritual. You know, it has this larger meaning. We sort of like observe it as a part of who we are, like you were saying, like who we are is that we do this thing. And so there's a kind of like way that she can compartmentalize these things. Mm -hmm. You know, she could look at Octavia covered in blood. Octavia, who like moments before was lying face down on that desk with like tears running down her face. Clearly, you know, like, Oh my God. Like, yes. which by the way, like, I mean, speaking of like, one of the things that makes this episode so amazing and one of the greatest and like one of the reasons why this episode for me works so well as a kind of journey for Octavia is that we get to see every single emotional and psychological beat of her journey and linger mm-hmm. on them and getting just that little moment of seeing her feeling the trauma of having been pushed to the point of killing those people, you know, having to slaughter those people in the hallway in order to save everyone you know, being pushed to the point and having to have had that confrontation with Jaha where she had to realize that her mother did have to die. Like we got a moment to see Octavia, the 17 year old girl feeling the weight of that, you know, feeling the trauma of that. And then in the next moment she gets up, you know, and Gaia takes her to the mirror and Gaia with her like incredible, terrifying, magical powers of charisma and persuasion can look at her and say, no, leave the blood of these people on her. That is your armor. And like not only take that sort of image of Octavia as covered in the blood of her people and transform it for her people, but she transforms it for Octavia too. Like Mm -hmm. she convinces Octavia in that moment. Because 
in that moment, when Octavia, Octavia's spent, she's tired, mm-hmm. she is holed out. Mm-hmm. So when they come in the room, it's this, again, and I just, Marie is a revelation. Oh my in gosh, that moment, so when they come in the room, she sits up like a little kid, like, there's more? Like, yeah. I don't have anything else to, I don't have anything else to give to y'all. Like, I'm like, <laughs> what's next? I don't know what to do now. Yeah, and, yeah, like, yeah. And, 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 and Gaia literally comes in and fills her. She is yeah. holed mm-hmm. out and and Gaia comes in and fills her. So when she steps out there and talks to those people, that is Blood Raina. It's no longer any of her previous personas. She has become this person. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that, that Blood Raina is as much the creation of Gaia as of she Gaia. is. She is Octavia. Uh, like yeah. Blood Raina in a lot of ways is the work of Jaha and Gaia without each other's knowledge. But I think that's maybe what makes Gaia sort of like you know, I think, you know, one sort of takeaway for me from this episode was a moment of realizing, like, oh, Gaia. Gaia is a force to be reckoned with in this mm-hmm. that I had not been mentally accounting for enough. Because, like, in that moment, you see she has an unbelievable amount of power because she yeah. creates the thing that not just the people will believe in, but that Octavia will believe in. You know, she has a tremendous amount of power. Arguably, Gaia has more power in that moment than anyone in that bunker. Oh, yeah. Well, because yeah, Gaia yeah. has rewritten the entire she's like we used to believe that it, like you had to be a nightblood and blah 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 and all this stuff but I've decided yeah. that like yeah. what the holy books actually say is like I'm gonna do like a mild little retcon here and I'm gonna say like you're still like I believe that you're the one that's gonna deliver us to the ground and so we watch her rewriting completely sincerely like I, I oh yeah I yeah. think it's chilling because Gaia like believes it's down oh, to yeah. her bones and sure. so so now she has single-handedly restructured the entire like basis of grounder faith even though they're one crew and even though like this is not sky cruise religious tradition or whatever but like the culture that you know that they've brought into this bunker Gaia and her place as a religious leader would be like revered and respected by all of the grounder clans and, and so for Gaia to come out and say hey I consulted the oracles and actually you know like it's, it, it's not just that we're allowed to have a red blooded queen instead of a black blooded queen it's like we're making red a thing now. <laughs> like we're like leaning into red, you know. And so watching her just red like in that black. moment, yeah, red, red is new black. Yeah, like watching her completely rewrite the meaning and the teachings and the sort of you know history and and belief of this faith system, this kind of like political religious institution that she spent her entire life in. I think part of why it's chilling is that there's more than a little Bill Cadigan in Gaia and oh, vice yeah. versa. Oh, yeah. Like the sure. and, and Zaha, I think I think paralleling Jaha with Gaia is also so interesting. Just like I think in the way that one of the things that he sort of gave us last season that was so cool was just sort of like a lens into looking at like what makes somebody a zealot? What are all the different ways that somebody can be a zealot? And some of it is religion, cult leader, you know, like we got with Cadigan, but some of it is sort of a, a ruthless single-mindedness of purpose, which Jaha has always had. And so just this kind of little, like, cult leader trifecta of, of sort of the ghost of Bill Cadigan, and then Jaha and Gaia in their own sort of different ways, was, like, fascinating to watch that sort of unfold. But I do feel like, I think you're right, Erin, I think that, you know, knowing that Gaia was coming back, knowing that Tati was getting a bigger role this season, like, everyone, we were all obviously like, super excited, and I was sort of in my head thinking of it as, like, okay, so Gaia is going to be Octavia's like get a grip friend. Like Octavia, like Gaia is going to be like one of her people on her council. She'll probably end up in some kind of a flame keeper-y type position. But like as a member of Octavia's support team, you know, and now 
that we've realized how very, very much that is, in fact, not the case, it makes me really wonder... First of all, two things. It makes me wonder what the hell is going to happen when they get out of the bunker and the particular ways that Octavia has, you know, had to keep the peace and the creature that Gaia shaped her into will have to sort of metamorphose again because now they're not starved for resources. Now they're not beholden to following every single thing that she says in order to survive. So kind of then what happens to that entire dynamic. And it also makes me think, before we got to this episode, thinking of the episode title, I think it's maybe six or seven, which is Six Emperor Tyrannus. I'd been sort of contextualizing that as being like they're probably utilizing that I was sort of like thinking of the Lincoln connection you know and that it would likely because it's tied to Lincoln be part of Octavia's and the grounder storyline but thinking of it very much in the like Lincoln and John Wilkes Booth context and now that we've got such a strong Caesar thread running through this story part of me is like maybe they're meaning it like in the literal like the OG sense of that phrase we're going like all the way back to the source and I wonder if the things that Octavia and Gaia have had to do that are necessary in this bunker how those things will look and how they as people will look once they're no longer in that system that is like so desperate and repressed and starved that these choices are necessary so you're sort of willing to go along with it because there's no other way to survive you know Mm -hmm. like who is Gaia in that world after Octavia has fulfilled the goal that Gaia believed that she would of getting them to the ground then like I don't imagine Gaia is going to be like well washing my hands of this I did my thing (laughs) my job is over I will see you back at camp you know Um, like who does Gaia become in that new world I think could be really interesting just because people don't give up power very easily you know like once you have it you hold on to it so once she's fulfilled that kind of prophecy like what's Gaia's role yeah I do I want to double back really quickly back to that conversation you know blood of your enemies conversation because we're cut there's a cut there they cut away from what they're talking about to the next scene is Octavia addressing the masses and what's interesting though is even though Gaia is the person who gets her started I can only imagine where the conversation goes from there because Gaia didn't make up the Roman thing that was then they started to have a meeting of the minds and so yeah, yeah, yeah. I just want to see the outtakes of what Indra was looking at. Like when she was looking at them, like crafting what <laughs> magic mm-hmm. she was looking at. Like it becomes when Gaia came in and filled Octavia with a will to continue. Uh-huh. I think it was it stoked the fire. It's like yeah, yeah, yeah. It stoked her fire, and then she was ready to like hash this whole thing out. So by the time she went out there to talk to the people, you know, she was like, "You're gonna do this thing." I'm in charge now. I just killed all your friends. Make it happen. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You know, so she was really in her power at that moment. I also am very interested in seeing what that partnership is going to look, what that partnership looked like in through flashback form and how it's going to metamorphosize. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know what it reminds me of, Crystal, something that you and I were talking about on Twitter, I think last night in terms of like, well, Octavia and Jaha, but we've gotten it, I think over the course of the show and even in this episode with a number of different characters, is sort of this idea that becoming a leader does not like being put into a leadership position doesn't automatically inherently imbue you with leadership skills or the ability to be a leader it heightens what's already there and so the way Jaha like you were saying Jaha was 
chancellorized like an engineer. Yep. And Octavia rules like a scrappy warrior with the sort of clash of cultures going on within her internally. Her leadershipness is like a little bit Bellamy bedtime stories and a little bit grounder tree crew Indra this community yep. and a little bit the life that she was brought up with like it's, like it's all the different sort of pieces of Octavia. Yeah. You know and Jaha you know, is the ultimate big brother in space. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> Like even in previous seasons, you know, we've seen like, you know, the way Lexa was a leader or the way Diana Sidney was a chancellor. Pike, for God's sake, like Pike's entire motivation was agriculture stuff. Like yeah. Pike was the person who was like, we don't have enough arable land. So here are the things that we have to do. Like Pike chancellorized like an earth skills teacher who could see 10 steps ahead of everybody else where they were going to land in terms of starvation when the winter comes. And so yeah. the choices that he made came like in a straight line from that and the way that he was motivated by children, like protecting children that was something that Mike said to us when we interviewed him like that's Pike's driving force because he was a teacher you know so you can see all these characters the person that they were before they were shoved into a leadership position is who is like, you always continue to be who you always were it's just that those things are heightened the revelation of what kind of leader Octavia becomes, even though the sort of flash forward version of it is hardened into this terrifying, unrecognizable, sort of almost dehumanized version of her that we see. The arc that she goes on over the course of this episode pulls all those pieces of Octavia into creating the kind of leader that only Octavia could become. No one else in this entire world would have taken this exact particular specific route to establishing something resembling peace and harmony and leadership. It was like its own only because Octavia has all those facets inside of her that she ends up ruling in this particular way. And I also, I think, even going back to the conclave, let's say Clark would have gotten killed immediately, but let's say, <laughs> she, <laughs> let's say she didn't get killed immediately and she won. Like that idea of everybody, like she was talking about sharing a bunker, but she was not talking about excising 300 of her own people out to die. So it would have been all of Sky Crew and like a, a smattering of the other crews. Right. You know, if, like everything that. I don't know. I feel like with Octavia, her story is so particular to her in a good way. Like mm -hmm. she is the only person that can do the things that she does. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You can't take her out and put another character in and have it make sense. Exactly. Or, and most, of, most of her big beats. Yeah. And that's what I, what I really love about like what I feel like when Octavia is at her best, what I really love about her is that they allow her to be all those different people. Like I loved in season three when she was like teaming up with Kane and his like little rebellion where it's like, like, it's because she was the girl under the floorboards that she's the person who's stealthy enough to like climb in and out of these tiny yeah. enclosed spaces into the wall to get in and out to sort of facilitate the Pike Rebellion. And then like, you know, the advice that Bellamy gives to her at the Conclave is like, you don't have to be Luna. Yeah. You just have to be Octavia Blake. You know, yeah. like you don't have to be this person that you're not. You don't, you know, like you're not the biggest and beefiest and strongest and most mighty and badass, but like you're Octavia Blake and you have skills and history and abilities and memories and ideas that are specific to you that will allow you to that, that kept her alive for 16 years in this totalitarian regime that was totally out to get her you know so I like when this show remembers all of the different versions of her that she's been all the different sort of people that she's been and lets those things coalesce into one and I like so I was interested to see how those sort of multiple Octavias continue to live inside her and how that sort of 
other pieces of herself that she has sort of put on the shelf to become more and more and more Blood Reina? And how do those things kind of get rattled when her past returns from space, <laughs> you know, and confronts this new version of her? You know, like, what is it going to be like when Blood Reina meets Bellamy, you know, or Clark? You know, so I so I'm interested in in I think how that's all going to play out. But I loved how sort of every sort of step along the way of her journey in this episode was really shaped by you know all those different pieces of it that that she revisited her origins in that conversation with Jaha. You know, I think that was like yeah. looping all the way back to the source, like the origin story of Octavia's pain and anger that goes way back further than Lincoln. You know, and and further than you know her tension and estrangement since I hit the ground with Bellamy, like her kind of her original wound, her original sort of source of emotional damage was this life that she was forced to lead because she was like, her existence was a crime. Like she was yeah. a person that wasn't supposed to be, you know, and, and Jaha was very directly and specifically responsible, not just for facilitating, you know, and being, you know, complicit in the system that allowed that to happen, but became, became kind of her face for the entirety of that system, yeah. you know, and like the person person that she kind of anthropomorphized everything wrong with arc society onto this one guy. So Cabby, speaking of parents who raise murder children. <laughs> uh, <laughs> exactly. Well, and actually speaking of, I actually, I love that. That's how the whole episode starts. Like the first thing that we see yeah, happen yeah. with Kane and Abby, like the first you know moment between the two of them picks right back up from where we left off with, you know, in the middle of Clark's flashback, linking up those two storylines. I mean, it was bad enough when we were watching it from Clark's perspective, thinking that nobody heard her. That was devastating in its own way. And then the additional layer of devastating that happened when you realize that they did hear her and, and that her mom was right there. I was like... This show is coming for my life. And I also just, as a person who is perpetually and forever weak for Kane Clark dad feels, the fact that Kane was the one that heard her knocking was like, because it could have been anyone. It could have been just like a rando, you know, someone could have come into Octavia's room and been like, we heard knocking. And she was like, ah, go send Kane, you know. But like, so I loved that moment. I loved the you know, the fact that it kind of happened in the middle of, you know, Octavia's boring ass staff meeting. Like, <laughs> getting her an evac, thank God. Um, I, <laughs> I love them letting him be the person who had that. And I loved that as a way to, I think, really efficiently shorthand their, you know, breakup and estrangement over the past month and change that, like, he's not happy with her. She is not happy with him. Things are full of tension. And yet it's so obvious to everyone, like who it must be, who could possibly still be like alive, walking around up on the surface of the earth, banging on their door that, you know, that the first thing that he does is like, you know, is go send for Abby. So, so I loved, I mean, and, and, and Aaron and I were talking, we were texting when we were watching that episode, like, you know, we obviously, we saw a snippet of like some sort of the middle section of that scene released early as a preview, but the pieces the bookending on either side of it, which they sliced out, shaped it and colored it in a really interesting way. Like hearing Kane say, like, you know, that's the most you said to me in a month. And something that I that I liked about the dynamic of the whole thing was that really kind of kicked off in that scene is 
something that we had talked about a lot at the end of last season, which is like begging and pleading with the writers to like, let there be emotional fallout from Kane removing Abby's agency Mm -hmm. when he brought her inside. Mm -hmm. Like don't rush us past six years later. And they're like happily married and it's never addressed again. Like that's a, you know, that's a significant, like you understand why he did it. You know, it, it makes perfect sense. And any of these characters would do that for anybody that they love, but also she gets to be angry because she made a decision. She was very clear. Like, we're all glad that she's not dead. But, like, she was very clear with him about what she wanted. And he took that away from her while she was unconscious. And so, like, allowing both sides of that argument to be fully realized and presented, I thought was really important. But what I liked about it was they didn't make Kane like, a sad little kicked puppy. Like, Kane got a couple of, like, you know, sort of, like, bitchy sarcastic little muttered one-liner quips like he was like he was pushing back too it's like i'm also kind of pissed at you actually and i was like yes i like that mm-hmm. you know like i i like that they were letting him he like again like with jaha talking to octavia like he is like i am sorry that you are not happy but i also do not apologize for what i did and i like that level of nuance like i like when we let people kind of live in that complexity where it's like i'm really like if you're pissed at me, be pissed at me. I'm sorry that you're upset, but also I would go do that same thing again a million times. So I liked that that little, you know, sexy bickering tension. It's like, oh, I've missed season one, Cabby, when they're just arguing the whole time. I'm glad we didn't live with it the entire episode, but I liked that we that we got that sort of little. It felt like a realistic place to kind of pick back up and a realistic incident of enough momentous significance that it would force the two of them to push past, you know, their sort of avoidance of each other to be like, okay, bigger thing at stake is, you know, there's somebody out there, there's very good chances, Clark. And so letting the two of them be the ones who discover the thing that we already know, which is that like the building having collapsed on top of them and the sort of perfect little dichotomy of like Abby's first concern is Clark isn't getting in. And Kane's first concern is more the sort of macro, the leader point of view, like, like that, that little tiny moment is such a perfect encapsulation of the way that they each think. Like all Abby can think right now is like, my kid is like right there. She's 12 feet away and I can't get to her. And Kane has already moved one step past that to the leader problem, Mm -hmm. you know? And um, so so that, like, I like that little reminder of just sort of the different, you know, the different ways that they work in terms of their leadership style. And, And I also like that it really set us up for, you know, this kind of, constant simmering of tension the sort of new normal in their relationship and um and how you know they really let those emotional stakes breathe like they let her be really angry and push him back really hard and they let him be in his own way like frustrated at her frustration and you know and push back against that and i also like just because i think it was it i was keeping my hopes moderate and had not necessarily allowed myself to like hope for it. But I liked that Abby in the beginning is like still, you know, one of Octavia's like that. She's like in the council room, you know, like the Abby is person who like, who knows things, who has an important perspective, her being there as a doctor, Jaha being there as the engineer. Like I, I liked that, that there's still people who have like that, you know, Abby in particular, because she doesn't have the kind of relationship with Octavia that Kane has. So I like that we sort of were setting it up like she's still, you know, like they're still leaders. She still is like contributing, you know, to the team. And and then we got to that 
sort of the the hints of foreshadowing of the potential, you know, impending cannibal storyline really hinge around Abby's identity as a doctor, you know, mm-hmm. like her her doctor self and the arc doctor in particular, like all of the things about how shit went down on the arc. One of the things that I really wanted out of Kim and Abby's relationship that I really was happy that we got in this episode so like more, I think, than I even would have ever imagined was similar to Octavia, like all of the different facets of themselves, you know, like Abby, Abby's anger at the way that Kane took away her agency at the end of the previous season, Abby as the doctor on the arc who has all this incredibly important information and skills that are tremendously useful once again, now that they're kind of in this same situation, her friendship with Jaha her relationship with Jackson uh, and her kind of like motheringness of him, I thought was really lovely. And then also her, the, the grief that we see her feel at like feeling like Clark is, is so close and then snatched away. And that sort of dawning realization that like, maybe it'll never be reunited. So like all the sort of different facets of Abby, you know, that kind of come out in the story. And then for Kane, I like, I've been waiting I don't even know how long I've been waiting for a textual like throwback to the fact that he tried to float her mm, in the pilot. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. like I, like I love Cabby. I'm a Cabby shipper. Everyone knows this about me, but so like, it wasn't like I was like unhappy that they like fell into bed together in the second episode of season four. I was like, yes, this is wonderful. But one of the <laughs> things that like, like realistically in their relationship, like one of the things that we never saw and there's no reason to believe from the way things kind of unfolded that it ever happened was like, they had a lot of like past shit and baggage that they never talked through. Like there's all of these ways that they're super different and complicated things in their past history that they didn't ever have that conversation. Like they didn't sort of like enter into a relationship in a way that had any kind of let's talk about what we are to each other thing to it. Like they just sort of, it kind of just happened. So I I felt like all of that history coming back up, you know, and her and and all of the sort of things that have been hovering between them and like left unsaid for a really, really long time, just being like said right out in the open, even when they're incredibly uncomfortable, I thought was that was really beautiful and, and kind of a nice thematic tie in with you know with some of the other big conversations like the Jaha Octavia conversation like all all these things that have sort of hovered in the periphery of everybody's mythology and backstory and history and past and no one has ever said out loud like I this is what actually happened when your mom got floated like let's we're gonna just say it you know and you know or or Abby saying like your you know your argument that you saved me because I'm a doctor and we need doctors is bullshit because that didn't apply in the pilot when you tried to float me. So like, so admit that you are not, you know, that you are coming at this with a more biased perspective, you know, and then Kane finally does. He's like, okay, yeah, fine. Like I admit it, you know, um, it's because I'm a big soft teddy bear. Who's in love with you. But I think it was important that, you know, that they sort of forced each other to confront, to confront some things that have been hovering around and sort of implied or nudged at and never really, outright said so it really felt like in addition to being a really lovely way of kind of setting up the real stakes setting up the kind of fallout from from 412 and then this sort of series of increasingly sort of extenuating circumstances that kind of bring them back together again in a way that feels really organic it also was like 
the total airing of all the dirty laundry and like all their history and their relationship with each other kind of getting it all out there in a way where it feels like you're kind of burning away the dead wood and like whatever direction their relationship goes next from here, they're starting on a, on a foundation of having, of having gotten to a new place of honesty with each other, which I really like. I was just going to say, I think also, you know, to kind of like take the cabbie of this episode and, and try to think about like how, you know, why, why were those scenes important? Not just cute cabbie scenes, but sort of thematically. And I think one thing that is, that I feel like they're sort of setting that those scenes really set up and that that confrontation between them, that sort of like they're processing with each other, like, why did you really make the choice to keep me inside? You know, like he can come up with all kinds of plausible deniability. Like it's because you're a doctor, like there's practical reasons. You know, she calls him on it and finally he has to admit, he's like, yes, I, you know, I, I did it because I couldn't bear to lose you. I couldn't bear it. I couldn't put you outside and close the door. You know, he forces her to admit. You know, did you regret uh, opening the door for me? And she has to admit no. And I think the thing that's important there, you know, that kind of transcends just what that means for Kane and Abby's relationship that I think is really interesting is something to keep an eye on going forward for the kind of like just the show in general is that what that established is that love is a factor in the way that people make decisions. Mm-hmm. in a really, really important and central way. And you can, you can rationalize it in all kinds of ways. You know, you can, you can talk around it and it can be about our people and it can be about, you know, this or that or however you want to explain it. But at the end of the day, love is a force that shapes how people behave and the decisions that they make and maybe makes them capable of doing something they're not, you know, they're otherwise not able to do. Like with Jackson... And those moments when he's looking at Kara's gun and Mm -hmm. thinking about grabbing it and he wants to do it and he can't quite do it. And Mm -hmm. like, Claire, I think we were texting you said something like, that was a literal Chekhov's gun. A literal Chekhov's gun. If Jackson doesn't grab a gun and fire it at someone at some point in this season. Yeah, that That was some foreshadowing. Yeah, that was the beginning of an arc. But I think maybe what that's kind of gesturing towards is like, love is something that makes people do things that they otherwise might not do. Yeah. That might not be rational, you know, or might not be that you might never have imagined you were able to, you know, able to do. And I think there's a really interesting kind of thread of that between the cabbie scenes and and then sort of admitting to each other, I made these hugely consequential choices because of you, for you, because I love you. And and sort of Jackson kind of having to confront the fact that, like, he's trapped in this situation. He wants to rebel. You know, he's considering mm-hmm. violence, something that he never would have thought of before. Because yeah. the person he loves, Miller, is out there. And if he yeah. doesn't, he's going to die. You know, like, something terrible is going to happen to him. And then sort of thinking about, like, you know, you know that it's been, it had been hinted, ja- uh, Jaha. <laughs> Jason. Um <laughs> <laughs> That's a hell of a Freudian slip. Uh, <laughs> Jason has, you know, they've they've hinted over and over again that I think that's, you know, that's something that's going to be a huge part of the season going forward in terms of like Clark is changed as a person as as a character who's making huge decisions because she loves Maddie more than anything in the world. You know, like her love for Maddie 
is going to change who she is and what she does. And that's going to, I think, going to be true for space crew in terms of their loyalty to each other. And like, and of course, in like all sorts of unexpected ways. And this, this episode is so careful and they've been so deliberate about the way that they've sort of set up issues to come that I just sort of think that Mm. that, that convert, that's Cabby having that specific conversation, you know, confronting those issues in ways that all come down to ultimately it's because I loved you. Mm -hmm. I made the decision this time. That's different from the decision last time, because last time I didn't love you. And now that I, now I do, you know, sort of like putting love at the center of that, I think is really important. And I, and I think that it draws some really, um, I was thinking about this earlier when talking about Jaha, like, the Kane and Jaha kind of parallels and contrasts in this episode, I think were really interesting because like we get Jaha talking to Octavia about the fact that when you're a leader, you know, you have to make choices in a particular way that are divorced from that emotional weight. Because if you start to think about everybody's children, You'll never be able to float anybody and you have to. So like, you know, the way that he had to shift into chancellor thinking to make those choices and the fact that he is, you know, that we know that he's the person who shaped who Kane was as a leader, as a politician, you know, on the arc together and, and how much, you know, how present their friendship was in the episode all throughout it, which, which was really lovely. But so that, so I think that juxtaposed with, Kane now can't be that leader anymore. Like Kane has a Kane has a one person, you know, the way Clark and Maddie have like a one person that that shifts the entirety of your thinking and makes it harder to be to be that neutral leader who can sort of step back and think like, well, is this what's best for like the maximum number of my people? You know, and I think that for Jaha, the you know, it isn't that he that he loved his son or his wife less. It's that he had to come up with a way to sort of shift in and out of that thinking to make those choices. And like he tells Clark, like, you know, like, like it, it whittles you down piece by piece. And so I felt like having, you know, having the floating, like the attempted, you know, execution of Abby, which is something that happened very much when, you know, Kane, Kane was like out jahaing Jaha in that scene, you know, like Jaha to stop him. What we hear Jaha kind of trying to to pass on to Octavia about what leadership means and how it sometimes forces you to have to kind of step back and take the long view and depersonalize a little bit. And what we get from Kane is somebody who we've seen used to have that mindset and has now shifted completely and now he can't like he we hear him like admit like he can't let himself make decisions that way anymore um and well, so i also, like i think i think what like that kind of highlights is you know to go back to the kind of that that sort of underlying theme where creation and destruction you know the kind of good and bad mm-hmm. can't be you know, disentangled from each other. On the one hand, you know, like love is a beautiful, wonderful thing, you know, it's, and it's something that, that gives people abilities to do amazing things that they might not otherwise be able to do, you know, like love is so central and so important. On the other hand, the fact that Abby loved Cain and opened that door for him killed a lot of people, you Mm -hmm. know, like there's a really dark side to the fact that, Love makes you make bad decisions. 
Yeah. And somebody else died because Abby, because Kane saved Abby. Like yep. she wanted to be on the other side of the door yep. to let somebody else live. And Literally, so there's somebody who we, yeah. Someone else is dead because he, because he loved Abby. Yeah. Yeah. And I think bringing back, you know, and, and that was a Bellamy slash Abby decision. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, so both of them were doing it for love. You yes. know, I, my sister, she needs to be in here. And, mm-hmm. you know, Abby is like, I love Kane. He needs to be in here. And yeah. I love, I love that Kara, she, she was their consequences. She's yeah. way more. Yes. You can, you can tell she's going to be a dynamic character. Oh, like, yes. yeah. Absolutely. That but woman she, is a survivor. Yes. Yeah. And her anger, it's so funny because Abby, she, she's feisty. But like mad, like getting that kind of mad throughout the entire episode almost. Uh-huh. That's rare. It seems rare. Like, I mean, yeah, she gets, yeah. oh, yeah. And she, you know, she gets feisty, but she doesn't get like, I am pissed as hell. And so she was pissed as hell. Karen was pissed as hell. They kind of remind me of each other. It was really very interesting to look at. Like, yeah. the yeah. way in they were interacting. And I loved the moments when Kara was like, um, she was like, I, I'm going to stop talking to y'all because I'm going to blow your heads off. That yes. was amazing. Oh, my God. <laughs> that was incredible. That was, yeah. that was, that was like, the depth of her of her pain where she's like, I don't kill my own people, but, like, that's how pissed I am right now. So, like, I literally was like, oh, I like you. But And I also like that they, they drew those parallels between, like, I think those parallels between her and Abby were deliberate where it's like, you know, she she lost her her love when Kane got to keep his like literally yeah. in a literal mm-hmm. sense, you know, yeah. mm-hmm. and, and that she is the living embodiment of, you know, in, in a, in a way that was, you know, we had lots of, lots of little kind of subtle culling callbacks, you know, throughout the episode, but the fact that, you know, Kara lost her father in the culling, that is her perception of who Marcus Kane is, you know? And one of the things that I really loved about, we talked about this last season with the Black Rain episode, with the fight between Bellamy and Kane. One of the things that I that I loved that made like a standout moment for me was that reminder that we get that like, you know, we've watched, we the audience have like watched Kane, you know, evolve into this cuddly bearded dad who just wants to love a million children you know and um and wants peace and is a diplomat and like we we've watched this whole kind of journey that he's gone on and like we the audience watching this whole narrative you know we go on those journeys that the writers take us on but i really think that those reminders that the other people around them like it's been less than a year since kane was that guy and so it's fresh for them Kara's, she's an adult. Her entire life, Marcus Kane has been this person to her who, you know, like on the council and chancellor and whatever. And, you know, and that like the last big thing that he did, he made this decision that everyone, you know, that like that took her father's life. And yes, like they all volunteered. Her father chose that. They didn't just secretly gas them like everyone like was, you know, volunteered. But still he died, you know, and then the earth was habitable. And then it was like, Mm -hmm. oh, actually, JK, no one had to die, you know. Mm -hmm. And so so we saw that break came down. We saw that as a moment that was utterly transformative for who he was as a person, as a leader, the way that it caused him to rethink like all of the things that he had believed to be true and all of his conviction in his own rightness and being like, fuck. 
like I was a level of wrong that you can't come back from and 300 people are dead and, and, it, and I can't escape the fact that it's on me, you know? So we watched him go through that journey, but for her, that's the person that he is. And, and then the very next thing that she knows, you know, like here they are in this bunker that she feels like, Hey, all of my people, like, I don't know who the fuck these other people are, but like all my people were supposed to be safe, you know, and in her husband didn't make the cut, you know, she's a farmer. They needed her. She was on Clark's list. And so she sees Kane, like this fucking guy, here he comes again, <laughs> making life decisions that, and, and so now like her father and her husband are dead because of Kane. And even though we, who by this point in the narrative, we know Kane well enough to see these things from his perspective. And we understand that, you know, we know exactly why he made the choices that he made. We saw that like, you know, that the culling like, was this huge turning point in his life, you know? So like we've in some ways kind of not distance ourselves from those things, but like we've made allowances for them in a way. And what I liked about that to go back to the, to the black rain episode was like, it was important to have somebody, you know, that Kane has this, you know, close relationship with that. He has this sort of parental thing with Bellamy, you know, he's trying so hard to get through to Bellamy. He's trying so hard to like, fix the pain that Bellamy's in over Octavia and that he can't get to Octavia. He can't save her and to have him like reach out, like so vulnerable with all of this compassion. And like, I'm proud of you as though you were my son. Like I'm trying to have, you know, and for Bellamy to say like, you floated my mother. Like yeah. it's like, it's devastating. Like it, it hurts so bad. Cause you're just like, no, I just want you guys to be father and son. But also like all the different facets of Kane kind of coalesced in that episode. And like, he, it was a really important reminder that like he wants to not be that guy anymore. And, and on a certain level, I think he has convinced himself or he's begun to try to sort of convince himself that he has atoned and isn't that guy anymore, but that doesn't change how the people around you see you, you know, like that's not how did that's the other thing. Mm -hmm. Not just, it's not just their perception. It's like, no, you, you materially did a thing. Anything. And, and it and it and it impacted the world. Yeah, and, and so many people in this in this show sometimes feel like, and and not just this show, but it shows about redemption. Mm-hmm. A lot of times that'll that'll get like kind of glossed over. Like I know you didn't mean to, but you did it. So right, right you, know, you did so it. Like, yeah, and people died, and yeah. and like repentance doesn't mean the thing didn't happen. Or that nobody gets to be mad at you anymore, or that there are no consequences. It's like a journey that you go on for yourself that's about like, I don't want to be that person anymore in terms of making those different kinds of choices. Like I don't want to that like what what hallucination Jake told Clark in Day Trip. (laughs) Yeah. Forgiveness isn't about what people deserve. That cuts both ways. Yes, it means exactly. that you can forgive someone whether even if they don't quote unquote deserve it because, you know, forgiveness is for you. But it also means that even if by some perspective they might deserve it, it doesn't mean that you have to forgive or that you are forgiven. Right, you right, know? exactly. Because like yeah. you said, Crystal, like you did the thing, like you killed mm-hmm. their mother, that changed their lives, that hurt them. You know, you took away Kara's father and her husband in some ways, like the fact that you regret it or that you had reasons doesn't mean that hurt didn't happen. Mm-hmm. 
And that's what I like. And I, I remember I, I was I'm so glad that we're talking about this because because Crystal, when I was reading your review and that you said like like care exists to be like Cain and Abby's consequences, I was like, oh man, like she like I hadn't thought of it in that way, but it's like she literally is. She's a human embodiment of all of the things that they've done for each other, to each other, you know, for their people. Where it's like all the chickens are coming home to roost. And now this woman, as we've seen in the flash forward has established herself at the right hand of Blood Reina and Kane's in the fighting ring. Yeah. And we don't know why yet. And so like, so to what extent is Kane and Octavia's relationship going to be shaped? Like, like Kara as an influence, Kara as a person who has no love for Kane and Abby and any of those people, you know, how does she sort of slot in as an advisor, as a person who has potentially shaped Octavia's perception relationships, you know, I don't know, but that power flip that we get at the end, I guess not even powerful because Kara has a lot of power the whole entire time because she has them all chained up. But that, that new way in which Kara is holding life and death over Kane as punishment for something, you know, was both really foreboding and also a nice little, you know, she's still, I think in some ways, the same person six years from now, she's just in a totally different world and perspective but i but i like that she shows up out of nowhere as a fully realized character which was wonderful you know it's like oh another badass angry lady to love i'm here for it <laughs> you know she's, she's like like my i get two lady pikes this season i'm so excited um <laughs> but like but for her to sort of be like manifesting like an embodiment of the consequences that you try not to think about because they're too painful of the choices that you've made. Like the sort of dark flip side to Kane and Abby's love is the loss of Kara's love. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean that Kane should have made a different choice or that Abby didn't deserve to live or, you know, or that one love is less than the other. It means that like, there's no such thing as an action like that, that takes place in a vacuum. And, you know, and that, and so her sort of, being another, I guess, another way into exploring this question of of what choice looks like and what consequences look like and and this sort of ever-shifting perspective that the show does really well, where, like, everyone is, you know, a hero in their own story and a villain in somebody else's. But I loved her just sort of showing up immediately and being like, I am, like, I am here to force you to confront the fact that the thing that you did had a had a side that you are trying not to consider because living with the pain of you know the pain that you cause other people in addition to the pain that you like are both now feeling feels like too much but it's like you have to you can't you can't sort of erase that because it's convenient and so I think that's sort of you know it's cool that like she does so much kind of like here's the theme of this storyline without feeling like She's sort of like a walking billboard. Like she's also a totally fully realized person. Yeah, she's clearly like as a farmer, as a fighter, whatever, going to play a big role. I think it is in the writing, but I think it's the acting. I think it's the performance. Mm -hmm. I think mm -hmm. that role could have definitely been less dimensional than what she brought to it. Oh, yeah. One, mm -hmm. one of the things that I liked about her performance is she played it nervous. Like, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. She just, she was not, she's not like some fighter. She's not Pike. She didn't yeah. jump out there and like, I'm, you know, hoorah. Like she was not that, <laughs> she was like, this is not fair. We're going to do something about it. 
you know, leave it up to me, y'all. I'm gonna come up with a plan. But that didn't mean she felt like she was 100% confident. She was, she was in turmoil the entire time. Mm-hmm. You know, from the time she like snapped out of her fake um, seizure to talking to them to everything. And even at the end when she, you know, instead of killing them, she wants to kill herself. Like she's mm-hmm. just in turmoil, you know, mm-hmm. she's in turmoil. And I loved that about her. And that added a dimension to her that made her way more interesting than if she were like, you know, mustache twirling and mwahahaing. Right, exactly. And Abby. Well, I, well, also, and, I mean, and like, just that line that we already talked about, but I think the way and uh, the actress's name, I think, is Kira Sigorsky. Is that right? Yeah. Um, the way, awesome. Yeah. The way that she delivered that line, you know, I have to leave right now because I want I want to shoot you. Um, yeah. You know, like where where that wasn't a threat, you know, that wasn't there really wasn't a threat. It <laughs> nope. was her. It was her genuinely almost a little bit afraid of herself, you know, yes. just sort of yeah. like, so like distraught. A, yeah. aware that she's so overcome by emotion and she genuinely does not want to be a killer, you know, like that, that is something she cannot bring herself to do. Like she just brought such a like depth of like, of pathos to that line that I think you really saw kind of into her heart in that moment. The guitar one was another one too, where yeah. she's like, where she's like, you know, like, ignore the people, like, banging on the door outside. Like, we have everything we need. Look, we have music. Play louder, play louder. You know, yeah, like yeah, the, yeah. that desperation. It isn't just that she's trying to hold on to kind of shaky control. It gives us a picture of her as somebody who is, like, inherently a nonviolent person. You know, like, she's a farmer. Like, it's an agricultural problem. She's there to like solve a, you know, like to give them information about a farming problem they're going to face. Like she's there as an expert in her field and she's not a violent person. You know, she doesn't want to have to use the gun. She doesn't want to have to kill anybody. Like she's not, she's not exercising her leadership like Octavia by scaring everyone into submission. She's like, she's trying to, she's like a, like a, look, we're fine. We're okay. We've got food. We have a guitar. We're okay. Please don't be upset. It's going to be fine. And like, she's a, it's a whole different kind of coup d'etat sort of moment. And, um, and so I like that in juxtaposition with that little flash we get of her at the end where she has become like, she's got a, you know, that her tattoo and leather coat and totally stone faced and like overseeing, you know, she's the first victor of the fighting pits. And now she's the like next Octavia overseeing them. Like, you know, like what's her transition like over those six years from farmer to assistant death century and person up there with Miller that journey I'm really interested in like how does like Octavia clearly sees something in her and and brings her into the inner circle at some point I'm really interested in her actually in terms of parallels to Jaha because yeah. I think, like she she comes in with Jaha she's introduced by him there's that moment that like I didn't really think that much about the first time or the second time I watched just punched me in the chest where um, when she comes into the cafeteria and Jaha and Ethan are leaving, she tries to get him to stay, yeah, um, stay back yeah. for a moment, and then and he won't. And like, and I think it's a it's like such a like small but telling character moment. She looks genuinely upset about it, but she lets him go. Like she mm-hmm. realizes okay. she can't make him stay without like blowing her cover. Yeah. Um, but she looks, but like, you can tell, like it, it bothers her. She didn't her. want it to go like that. Yeah. And also, also like when the, when they're pounding on the door with the guitar thing, I think, you know, this is like you said, Crystal, this is another, this, that, this one in particular is a performance thing that you can tell she's trying to keep the people around her calm and soothe them. 
but it bothers her. You know, she yeah. isn't indifferent to the fact that there are people pounding on the door outside because they're going to die. You know, like she feels like she's doing what she has to do, what she's been, yeah. what, what she's been pushed into doing by the yeah. actions of Abby and Kane. And um, Octavia. And Octavia. Yeah, exactly. Like she, this is not what she wants. It's what she feels like. She has, like, this situation has been thrust upon her, and this is the only thing she can do. And there's a lot of similarities to Jaha in that. That Mm -hmm. she feels very deeply, she feels particularly deeply for her people, and she is willing to be the one to make these, like, sacrifices of basically, like, of those kind of feelings, like, of, of compassion for, you know, those who aren't her people, um, in order to kind of protect the ones that she wants to protect. And I think, I think there's also an element of Jaha, you know, and I think it's like, it's kind of interesting to watch her as a character where like, there's warring things inside of her. She clearly has a lot of compassion and has a lot of concerns. Like she's trying to save people's lives. And yeah, she's distinguishing Mm -hmm. between like who her people are, who should get to live and who shouldn't, you know, but like, she really, really cares about people's lives. She's trying to protect people. But at the same time, she has that rage, you know, that brings her to that moment where she's like, she's, she can feel herself almost about to kill Abby and Kane. And she has that indomitable survivor spirit where the instant she's in that circle and that sword comes down, she does not hesitate Mm -hmm. in that moment. It's her or them. And it's going to be her, you know? Yep. Yep. And I think like, I think there's a lot in common with Jaha there too. Yeah. That singularity of purpose. Once she's decided this is the situation and this was has to happen. She doesn't hesitate and she does it. She sort of like, it finds a way to internalize and swallow her misgivings. I'd be really, really interested to see if those wind up being sort of season-long parallels in terms of who she becomes, you know, the the Kara who is the kind of whatever she is to Octavia. You know, she's obviously probably some kind of advisor, but definitely something more ceremonial, too. If she sort yeah, of yeah, yeah. Up, if she sort of winds up almost being like, the Jaha to Gaia's to Gaia, you know, like Jaha's yeah. gone, but Kara's the new Jaha who's the kind of the two people, you know, who sort of, who sort of guide Octavia. But yeah, I'm, I'm really, I think, you know, interestingly, I, I think there's more sort of Jaha parallels with her than Pike parallels maybe. Yeah. I think that could, I think that could be, she's a character who, so, so we, she first kind of came onto our radar because when we interviewed Jason last time, um, this is a piece that we had to cut out because at the time it was a spoiler because she hadn't really been introduced at all. But he sort of all he mentioned, you know, was was that you know, there's this new character named Kara Cooper who's introduced in the second episode. And and I don't I don't know how many episodes she's in or or, you know, how big her arc is. I know that we've seen her in the background of some of the BTS pictures from way later in the season. But, but and, basically and what, don't forget, she was in the trailer in that weird scene with the guy with a thing moving in his stomach. Yes. Yes. Oh, yes she's yes. in. She's in the weird stomach scene and she's in in the desert when Maddie and Clark have their like hug reunion. Oh yeah. She's like in the background standing behind them. So so she's obviously she sticks around. But one of the things that Jason said that was when she when they brought her in 
you know, that, that he said it was one of those sort of like kismet moments where you're like, oh, like, like, here's somebody we could really write for. Like, here's somebody we could like, you know, like this actress can like do cool shit and we can like give her, give her cool shit to do and she can like deliver it, you know. So since then, I've sort of been waiting to sort of be like, all right, like, who is this mystery person who Jason thought was so exciting that we had to like cut any mention out of <laughs> the podcast of like who she's going to be or, you know, whatever. But she really did, I think, explode into the story with that level of yeah. of presence and charisma, but also in a way where it's like everything that happens from here on out is a giant question mark. Like, I don't have any predictions about what role Kara's going to play in the narrative. I mean, I think we've, we've covered in like, there's some thematic stuff I think will continue to play out, but like in terms of like, what does she do? What is her role? How does she move the story forward? You know, I I love how much I don't know. You know, I I think she's just a captivating new addition. You know, similar to like Dioza, where it's like I I already love you and I'm willing to go wherever you take me. I don't even care what happens. You know, um, because they're so they're so magnetic. But I I am really interested in you know just that little slice we get of her of another character who's gone through a monumental six year personality shift to go from being, you know, that kind of nervous, hesitant, I don't really want to hurt anybody person to, you know, to the care that we see sort of standing up there looking all murdery. I'm just like, <laughs> girl, what happened to you? I have so many questions. <laughs> I wonder if for me it's interesting because I don't know that she isn't still agricultural. Like obviously in my in my feelings, um, she still was the head agricultural or, or you yeah. Know, yeah. So that was that's the obvious reason why um, why Octavia was like after, you know, after she won, um, I'm sure, she, you know, Octavia just went to her and said, look, I'm I run this and I need you. And, th- and this is how it is. Yes. And I think, you know, that was part of it. I do wonder if she's even a if she has the ear of Octavia or if she it's like an honor she was the first to win, so it's like an honor for her to stand Dr. there. Z, like an honor. Oh kind yeah, of yeah. Thing. Like she's yeah. she's like sort of the the like first among the champions kind of. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. Ceremony almost. Yeah, yeah. Which I could definitely see, and I mean, like I was wondering, you know, she has those like marks, the mark on her forehead, and I was sort of wondering if that wasn't a mark of a champion, you know, if that was if there was like a sort of iconography. Mm-hmm sort of marking people who have won. I think you're right. You know, I think what's one other thing that was really interesting to me about this episode is that sort of little bit of background we got on Farm Station from Abby, where she mentioned the blight, like that there was a blight, that there was a time when something went wrong on Farm Station and it and it resulted in a period of cannibal uh, of cannibalism. And it made me realize that like it makes a lot of sense that the farm station, the people from farm station, you know, like Kara and like Pike would be the people who we'd be the most sort of sensitive to and attuned to these sort of like foundational existential issues of like subsistence, you know, Mm -hmm. like these are the people who are watching the plants that everyone relies upon to not starve to death. And so in like a weird way, you know, like, although like, they grow plants. I'm like, I kind of like, oh, but they just grow plants. It's like, yeah, they grow plants. And they're also, I think, in that, you know, because of that, potentially the people who are the most sort of viscerally aware of death, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yes. And so in that kind of way, like, it, it makes it sort of, it sort of interesting kind of logical sense that Kara as a character, Kara, you know, if Kara is a character who is 
sort of the head of their food production, the head of food growing. You know, if she became in the sort of new religion under Gaia, like almost like a priestess of both life and growth and also the priestess of death and combat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Um, because like those two things, again, like over and over in this episode, those two things are are inseparable. You cannot separate growth and life from death. Like you think about what, how those plants are growing and whether they, you know, and keeping them alive. And you're thinking about the flip side of that, which is your eventual, you know, imminent death. Well, and I think it's also important to remember that, like, you know, the first thing that she tells us, like her sort of first, you know, big key moment is being the person who delivers the information that there is no way to survive past year five with the resources that they have. And then when we meet her again at the very end, we're in year six. Mm-hmm. And, and so so the question of, you know, of what have they done or been forced to do and what measures have been taken in the meantime to change what everyone's relationship is to food. I mean, cannibalism, you know, obviously being one, but even things like the little snippet we get in the cafeteria scene of the conversation among Ethan and Jaha and Kane about half ration. Kane's immediately willing to give, you know, to give Ethan his food and Jaha, you know, good parent is basically like, nope, he, like everyone else is going to have to learn to exist on sort of what there is, you know? So, um, so those questions of who is in charge of, stewarding and distributing resources what are those resources what are the really painful ugly choices that they need like what do they had to do to get to a point where this many people are still alive in year six and i also think the thing that's important to remember about the the bunker that that i feel like i have to kind of like remind myself a little bit of sometimes it's like at this point we know that right about now right about year six is when the big dramatic thing happens and like the ship comes down from space and there's all these miners and you know and they have presumably excavation equipment you know like (laughs) it's like we know that it's awfully convenient that the exact kind of people who could unearth a building have you know but they don't know that like at that moment like they they're they're thinking this very well could be our lives forever, you know, or at least for like centuries, like it was from Mount Weather, like this could be our existence now. And so how does that shape the way they've had to make choices about resources and subsistence and things like that? And, and, you know, and how has Octavia perhaps become that which she railed against up on the Ark? You know, like there was, you know, speculation always, you know, flying around about like, is Octavia also implementing a one child policy, for example, Mm. you know, are there, you know, are there rules about pregnancy and contraception in the bunker that echo the kind of like oppressive strictures that made Octavia herself not supposed to exist on the arc? And is she now a person that has to enforce that? Because the whole point of the murder pits is (laughs) fewer and fewer and fewer people and adding new people while they're stuck down there is something that you have to consider very carefully you know Um, I think that also I mean speaking of the murder pits I feel (laughs) like it it is population control but like it's also supposed to be about you've done a thing you've done a crime against one crew and it's like yeah but First of all, are we even made aware of what the rules of one crew are? Or are we just informed of it when we, quote unquote, commit a crime against it? And like, like we get, we literally got in in the end of 
Um, the episode, we literally get done with one guy, like a one-on-one fight, maybe. I don't even know if there's more. Mm-hmm. But um, you get more done with one fight, and then it is, and then Kane and the rest of those people come. Like, what What are these people even right. accused of? How, like, what have they done? And, 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 what and how frequent are these? By is it like, yes. Are they like every, once a month, you know, you like save up all of your troublemakers and do it then or is it once a year you know yeah yeah i mean yeah the, the fact that there was like multiple bouts happening at once made me think like okay so either this isn't as effective a crime deterrent as octavia might have thought if people are still committing enough crimes that we have to have a murder pit every day um <laughs> or you know yeah, or or maybe I don't know. Maybe she batches them. And <laughs> my my cane theory, um, which, and that which ties to one of the things that I want to make sure that we hit before we wrap up, which is the um the the what I think most people now agree by and large should be the reveal of the big mystery Abby story. You know, that was like, what's the thing? Like, you know, like Abby's big arc, Paige getting the season to go absolutely like bananas, amazing, crazy performance. Um, and, and sort of, I think it was touched on pretty lightly, but it seems the general consensus that it's going to be something in the realm of opioid addiction mm-hmm. Her dependency on those pills is beyond just that she's still recovering from headaches. So one of the things that I've seen sort of floated around as a potential reasoning for why Kane could have ended up in the pits is did Kane either steal medicine for Abby or or did Abby steal medicine and Kane covered for her, which on the one hand fits perfectly as a crime against one crew because it's a depleting of resources that are needed for the whole for one person. So it fits in with Octavia's kind of ruling ethos. But it's also, I think, a very poetic and lovely reversal of the pilot in which Abby is sentenced to death by Kane for using more medical resources than she's supposed to to save mm-hmm. Jaha's life. Mm-hmm. You know, so so the sort of poetic symmetry of Cain being sentenced to death by Octavia for doing what he sentenced to Abby to death for. So the fact that like, I think the show likes those, the show loves the season one parallel whenever they can throw it in there. So that, so <laughs> and I, I think for that reason it. alone that, yeah. Oh, me neither. Yeah. I love him. Bring him on. Um, so for that reason alone, I, that, that's why I think that to me is, is of all the theories I've heard, that's kind of my front runner theory. But one of the things that I wonder you know, when Octavia says it's conclave rules, when she throws the sword down, you know, the fact that we see Kara win the first bout and then the next thing we see of her is she's obviously been significantly promoted. So my my guess slash question is, do we feel like like once you've sort of once you've won your bow and Octavia has done her little, you know, Augustus hand wave, like, yes, I agree. You get to live thing that, that, that like sort of, that absolves you, right? Like that wipes away. I think you're, that wipes clean the slate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so that makes me sort of wonder, I mean, like I'm assuming that Kane in that pit full of red shirts that Kane is working to win that fight. Cause we see him later in the season. So I'm assuming that's a safe bet. But then my question is in like, I wonder very much how does that shift his relationship with Octavia, especially if it's something, you know, like if it's tied into an addiction that Abby's been living with now for six years, it's an ongoing problem of which she's maybe this is the first time that he's been caught. Maybe he's been caught multiple times and it's a recurring thing. You know, like, is he like, I, it just makes me wonder, like, 
you know, even if we sort of buy like the sort of conceit of this is that the slate is wiped clean at the end. And now you like get to be like a full member of one crew again and Blood Rain is no longer pissed at you. The relationship between those two is so complicated. And that look that they gave each other was like so unreadable at the end that it just sort of made me like, I just had so many questions about like how, like, like, is that the correct theory? Is that how Kane gets in there? I love that they cut to Indra's face when yes. he walks in. Yes. Like yes. I loved, and I think I, like, I feel like, I think that's another one of those little shots that is setting up that Indra still has misgivings. Yes. You know, like she's, yes. I mean, she, you know, she's still in the inner circle, but she clearly, like there's some friction. Gaia's all in on it. You know, Kara seems all in on it. Indra's the one with some concerns. And I'm, and it sort of makes me wonder, like, whatever yeah. reason that Kane is in there. First of all, Indra and Kane are still bros, which makes me happy mm-hmm. because I love the yes. friendship. Um, but then also that, that Kane could be her tipping point. Like that this is going to be the That's next moment. That's what I was kind of thinking too. Yeah. Like, is, is this the moment where Indra is like, this has gone far enough and I have to do something like the system is no longer, this no longer feels just to me, you know? Mm. And, yeah. and I, and I, and I think if, I think if it is something like, you know, Kane is in the pit for doing something that technically on paper fits the definition of a crime, but Indra is like, this is the kind of situation where a leader, where, where a good leader makes allowances or has flexibility mm-hmm. or uses context, you know, or remembers like, this is a person that you know very well and care about very deeply. It makes sense where, you know, like Indra is, she holds on to her beliefs with a hard line, but she's also not, like, even when we first met her, she was not so rigidly inflexible that she couldn't be persuaded by a good argument you know but on the other hand she's also been a character who follows follows the person you know she is loyal to and follows her leader with this like really deep and unwavering kind of loyalty to the point where like i remember you know at the end of season two after Lexa betrays Sky Crew at Mount Weather, you know, there's that moment between Indra and Lincoln where, Inga, you know, Lincoln points out like what she did was like, you know, that was wrong. Like, you know, that was mm-hmm. dishonorable. And Indra basically says like, I know, but she's my commander. So I have to follow her. And so, so I think there's like, I think there's like a potential for a huge juicy story. For Indra, like I, yeah, well, because what, who is Indra? What is it that puts pushes Indra to the point where Indra rebels against her commander? Indra, though, I think that was the beginning of the end of Indra's blind faith in the commander. That's what I think too. That's true. That That's the beginning true. Of the end because and see, remember she was like um, when Penn wanted to like play with the guns when um, when Kane offered him, she came up and she was like, "Put that gun down. We don't touch guns." You know, she was yeah. a smart set a hardliner. With um fast forward, she's picking up guns, then she's demanding guns, That's then true. she's like throw our guns. Yeah. Like so and, she and, mowed down all those Asgado warriors. Yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. Like she's, she's, a, she's a prodigy in guns. And then the <laughs> she other, is. The other piece was another kind of fractal was when she in in this episode when she said your your little black blooded commanders would have let you burn. And she knows that for mm. a fact because Lexum let her burn. Because Lexum let a bomb drop on her. And in the in, in the moment, that old Indra, that old hardline Indra was like, I've I respect her for it. But after having these, 
you know, all these different experiences and realizing that sometimes the people that are in charge of you are not as honorable as you even are. Mm -hmm. And so she's been slowly but surely. So I think that unfortunately, I think she feels like she's helped create um, this, this uh, Octavia to a certain extent. And it's going to be interesting to see what she feels like she has to do mm-hmm. or what she doesn't do. Because again, love, we talked about it earlier. That's love is a motivator. Mo- love is a motivator mm-hmm. people. And, and that's the reason why she's been by her side to begin with. That's very, that's a very good yeah. point. And she, and, and, you know, she loves Gaia and she loves Octavia. And mm-hmm. it's, I mean, it's also possible that, you know, if she has misgivings, she feels like she needs to, remain a voice that can you know speak to them that can sort of like yeah. try to try to like save them from themselves yeah. in a way yeah yeah but you're right well, and you, there has it has been like a much more uh, like a gradual kind of evolution for her and the Antari thing too like like what we saw in season oh, yeah that's true. like mm-hmm. you know like that that indra uh, like indra was capable of in that moment of making a distinction between yes like you are, you know, you are a nightblood. And as, you know, as far as Indra knew, the ascension was legitimate. Like she didn't know that Antari didn't have the flame because Clark had stolen it. Like she wasn't there for that part of the story. So like, as far as all the information that Indra has, you know, Antari is a legitimate commander, but she still trusts her own intuition enough to not obey and take the chip, even when her commander demands it of her, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, so, I, so I think that we have... You know, I think we have, like, I think Chris is right. We've seen moments of, you know, of Indra questioning the things that she was always taught were were just sort of knee-jerk, automatically true. More and more so, and becoming sort of a little bit more in that kind of gray area. But what we haven't seen is, which I which I think might be the, the sort of five-car pileup that we're headed for, which could be incredibly juicy drama, the collision of, you know, Indra's more and more sort of increased willingness to question antiquated leadership structures that they no longer make sense to her versus the, the Indra who speaks hard truths to people that she cares about, mm-hmm. you know? And so mm-hmm. what happens when those two Indras meet in the middle and, you know, and can she go to this Octavia that she helped create and say, look, I went along with this for six years. I get why you did these things. I signed off on them. You know, like I didn't question, like we needed to do something and this is what we decided to do. But I no longer believe that this is right or I no longer believe that this system is working. And I do think, you know, I think it's there's every possibility that the tipping point is if Kane, you know, if Kane got locked up for something that's like so tiny and stupid or so human and defensible that even Indra, as by the book as she is, is like, look, like this is like part of being a leader is you have to be able to trust your own gut and instinct and not just be, you know, following the law, following the law, following the law. And if that does end up happening, that's a really interesting kind of circle back to the Octavia and Jaha conversation where Jaha says like, nope, you always have to look at it in terms of what's best for the people. Like, you know, I, I couldn't stop and think, well, but Aurora Blake has children and I shouldn't do this, you know? And, and so for Octavia in that mode, you know, she would have to be thinking, you know, like, yeah, I don't want Abby to die either, but if Kane stole medicine for her into the pit, he goes, them's the breaks, you know? Um, <laughs> so, so that, 
So this makes me wonder. I mean, I would, I would obviously, I would love it if that was Indra's breaking point because, like you said, Aaron, like I just, it's important to me that that bromance continue to thrive. Yes. Um, <laughs> you know, especially in the absence of Jaha when Kane has so few bros left. But um, <laughs> like, let him, let him hold on to all of the friends that he has. And Indra um, but has I, so few bros. Period. You know, I just exactly. She in general, she does not accumulate friends easily. Yes. <laughs> But yeah, so I so that I, that makes me sort of wonder what are we setting up in terms of oh and and also knowing what we know that they don't know that whenever it is that this six year flashback is happening, we are coming very up close to some dramatic twist of fate in which the bunker door opens and then everything changes and who the fuck is anybody and who is in charge mm-hmm. is Octavia even still in charge anymore Clark's back people are there with mining equipment are they in charge does she <laughs> ally herself with with but also like- but also she has an entire bunker full of people who have spent six years training themselves to be the best fighters mm-hmm. they can possibly be so they don't die in that pit so she's got a <laughs> hell of an army to march out there against Tioza. <laughs> Well, and, and Dioza says they're zealots. And now we know, now that we know what we know about Gaia and Gaia's kind of shaping hand influencing this sort of underground cult of Blood Reina that has emerged, I think by six years in, everyone in the bunker who's still alive either has fought in the pits at least once or has lost somebody to the pits or like it's a factor of their lives now. And if it's been imbued with this kind of religious significance that Gaia has grafted onto it, then Dioza saying, you know, like, yeah, they're, they're fanatics and fanatics make good soldiers. It makes sense that the army that Octavia has built are a, you know, formidable enemy against Gioza and the religious people. But what's interesting to me is, and I think this came out of one of maybe Jason's interviews from like, I think it came out after Eden, maybe before, I forget. But something that he said that that recontextualized this whole kind of Octavia, Octavia's role in the in the potential battle for Eden for me was the idea that, you know, when they talk about like the sort of the two serpents in the garden, Octavia is one and Dioza is one, and Clark and Space Crew are kind of caught in the middle of that, you know? And and that is interesting to me in that it sort of implies that there isn't an automatic alliance between the Blakes or between Clark and the rest of her people, that there's some kind of X factor that makes potentially Eligius seem more appealing or or more of a you know, of an ally that somebody wants to try to strike a deal with first. And and I wonder if potentially, you know, the way that Octavia's creepy blood cult looks when they come out into the light <laughs> makes it seem like potentially striking a bargain with the other guys is, you know, <laughs> is a more reasonable option. So I don't know. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's like literal chud are climbing out of the earth and right. you're like, <laughs> you're yeah. like, what the fuck? <laughs> I... I'm also having a lot of thoughts about Earth, Ark, Bunker as like hell, paradise, purgatory, you know, like, Mm -hmm. like creepy underground nightmare, murder, hellscape, check, (laughs) you know, um, like Eden, literal paradise, fruit and flowers and love and happiness, check. And the Ark as this place that is that is only about waiting, that has no permanence. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. That's just like waiting to be allowed back into paradise. That's true. Um, so like the Ark would be purgatory, and then Eden would yeah. be paradise. Yeah, Eden. Like 
Like yeah. everything about the arc is this total in between space. Like you know, everyone like no one feels like the relationships are permanent. No one felt like their life was permanent. Even the people like Monty and Echo who wanted to stay up there, it's with this kind of wistful knowledge that that was never going to be possible. Bellamy just fully with one foot out the door the entire time. <laughs> you know, it's this fully transient place yeah. um, mm-hmm. that sort of exists kind of in between both of those places. So I like the idea that potentially in some way they end up literally in between you know in between like Elygia is taking over you know Eden and Octavia and her bunker murder crew um and and that somehow space crew is like literally somehow in the middle of that so I don't know I have many questions but oh I have have one more like little piece of speculation that just has been sort of percolating it would make kind of sick sort of sense (laughs) if the role that Kara winds up having is that she is like the priestess of their cannibalism cult. Uh, no, I think Since that she I, is their food I think grower. That makes, yeah, and yeah, yeah, she yeah. was their first, and she was their first, you know, champion. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. what are they going to do with those bodies? They can't float those bodies. You know, like yeah. they have no way to like externalize those bodies. So if cannibalism does wind up being a bit a thing, yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense that it would wind up like she would be the sort of vector. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And, and that by, and that by year six, I mean like that, that, you know, we know because we see the origin of the fighting pits, we know that, that, well, we need a way to get extra protein is not like the motivating force behind creating them. But I do definitely think that by the time we hit year six, the farm is, you know, is maxed out no matter how many people they've killed in these fighting pits, like they're, they're still going to be sort of barely struggling to subsist on what they're growing. So some, like something has to have changed. And, and so what I sort of wonder is, you know, are, are we going to get to see, you know, and maybe we won't get any more flashbacks and it'll all just sort of be kind of moving forward from this point. Just um, be eating cubes of soylent green. <laughs> right. <laughs> but like, but I mean the, the, the question of like, at what point along the way did somebody say, you know what we could do with those corpses that no one's using anyway. There was a lot of moments that happened in this episode that felt like they were foreshadowing that character is going to be involved in a storyline related to that later. And the fact that Abby said like, you remember the blight, right? You know, like, (laughs) Hey, remember when your ancestors ate people? Huh? Huh? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, like I'm like, I'm going to, I'm an, I'm an arrow shining a bright light on you labeled cannibalism storyline. And I'm pointing (laughs) it at you, Kara Cooper, you know, so that, so that made me think like, I, I think you're right. I think that there's, very definitely in some way, I think she's going to end up hardwired into into that plot, both I, because she's the person who is like, you know, established as being in control of and hyper aware of the resources and scarcity of food supply. I think for me, two things. One is I hope whatever little cannibalism is going on, it's quick and it's over quick. I just don't mm-hmm. want to dwell on it. I'm just, I, I think, you know, I know cannibalism and like zombieism is like a big thing of our culture. It's always turned my stomach. And oh, I also, yeah, no, it does me too. Like I hope if it does happen, it's like one episode and it's not too graphic and then we can move yeah. on because. Yeah. <laughs> and also I, I hope that, and the other thing that I think about with cannibalism is kind of like how with cat, mad cow disease was like they were eating cows and that's and they were getting sick. So to me, I feel like a closed group of people eating people, everybody would be crazy and sick. So yeah. it's kind of like I 
they seem so robust that yeah, I'm hoping, yeah. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm just, I'm hoping that that's a huge red herring. Right. I just, yeah. Yeah. Not, not setting up a, they're not setting up a cannibalism story, in my opinion, just based on that, that episode. But I know, I, you know, I know I, I could be wrong it, or not an ongoing cannibalism story. Maybe, yeah, there was this like, you know, incident. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or, like, or maybe... Or maybe the fight that we're about to see, the one that Kane is in, is the like is the one where that starts or where it's first posited as a possibility. Like, you know, someone's hauling away all those bodies and then, you know, Kara comes in and she's like, we're out of food or whatever. And like maybe maybe we see maybe instead of it being something that you were doing for six years, it's something that we see them beginning or beginning to consider and then the lid opens and they're like oh thank god um, or it could even be a black market I yeah mean, that's that's you true. know it doesn't have to be a sanctioned thing or maybe yeah. it's it's a giant red herring which would be hilarious that i <laughs> i would actually love it if you know i mean like the i think the reason i mean the like ultimate it's a troll because it, it just sort of start off as speculation by like you know like a bunch of the actors sort of you know talking in veiled terms about like a scene that they had all had to film that was sort of particularly gross. Like, I don't know that anyone, I don't know that anyone actually has ever said cannibalism. It's like things were hinted at and we all kind of like dumped on. Well, there was also a picture over hiatus that one of the props people tweeted out a picture of like, there was a picture of like a, a bin full of severed limbs Oh, that's and right. And then there was yeah, yeah. somebody, a prop person like picking one up and pretending to take a bite. Oh, yeah, yeah. So that okay. was the other thing. I, I, yeah. I missed that. Yeah. It, but it but it, it is it was not I looked at it and then I was I definitely cuz I'm like you, I get really squicked out mm-hmm. by like cannibals and zombies and like yeah. I just I just I can't. I can't handle a lot of gore of that yeah, same. Yeah. Sort. yeah. So, yeah. Um, I, and I'm more like I think if cannibalism becomes a storyline, I'm I'm much less interested in like a big gross chompy banquet feast scene about it and more in in the moral and ethical ramifications and the question of who has this turned us into that we're repeating the worst mistakes that we made on the arc and you know and the worst most sort of deadly destructive aspects of who we are or skirting up close to making that choice, you know, or, or like we're almost to the point where this is something that's necessary or it's beginning to be necessary and somebody has a different idea or, or figures out a new way to do it or then salvation comes and the door opens or whatever, as opposed to, yeah, it is being something where like we have to keep watching people, you know, eating <laughs> soup that we know is made out of red shirt extras. <laughs> <laughs> Red shirt extra soup, my favorite. <laughs> yum, yum. Um, there was something else I wanted to touch on. This was the conversation right before um, cannibalism. When you talked about, when you were kind of like cording off the different spaces and what they represented. Oh, and yeah. you about paradise being earth, Eden. And um, one of the things I thought was interesting is that Clark didn't just hop, skip, and jump into Eden. She went through trials. She mm-hmm. had to go through like a trial by fire to get to Eden. She had to earn, you know, she had to earn that. And I yeah. thought that that, I think that that's interesting. I mean, all of them had to earn their places. Um, the irony, of course, of the bunker seemed like that's that's our sale salvation, and it obviously turned into yes. fucking hell. Yeah, but yeah. <laughs> but, but they all had to earn it, but. 
very specifically Clark on her own had mm-hmm. to go through these trials and tribulations. She even had to earn her daughter. She had to, you know, like <laughs> go through that awful thing with the bear trap and the, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, she yeah. went through a lot to, to earn Eden. Yeah. So see why. Yeah. Maddie is her, Maddie is her people. So all her, her, like her intensity over the series is going to be focused on the one kid, but it also Eden is, in, in itself, a, its own character. Like she, yeah, it's she a home she built. And it's, you know, I mean, I think the thing that the, the really beautiful thing, I think that the time jump does in, in that storyline in the Clark and Maddie storyline is that, you know, Eden is the longest she's lived anywhere since she got arrested and came down to earth. You know, yeah. like it's the longest she's lived anywhere since the you know quarters that she shared with her parents when she was a kid and so that sense of the hope of permanence and that feeling of settledness and that you know having a thing that that you're so emotionally attached to that you will fight for i i think you're totally right crystal that i think it's it's a twofold thing it's both maddie as a person and as a relationship and it's this place in in terms of being the home that she and maddie built together and this place where like, you know, like it was her life wasn't perfect because she was still missing all these people that she loves, but she wasn't not happy. Like she built a good life there and the place means something to her. And it's the only home Maddie's ever known. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. and um, and so I so I do feel like the things that Clark chooses to fight for and, and where she focuses all of that, you know, like laser focused Clark Griffin energy, you know, I think it's going to be really interesting to sort of to see what it's like when that is filtered down to like one place and one person and that, you know, that it's the other characters who are taking this kind of macro think about everybody kind of view, you know, like what does Clark really particularly owe to one crew at this point? Like she's, she, you know, she wants her mom, you know, and she cares about Octavia and, you know, Kane and Miller and Indra and like Anila and like half a dozen of those other people. But like, they're not anchored to her in the same way that Maddie is, you know, like, like no one Mm -hmm. except her mom in that bunker. Does she have anywhere near that same kind of relationship with, you know, and so she's not going to be making choices the same way, but also she's Clark Griffin. So, can she resist when she's put in a position where somebody has to take charge? Can she resist taking charge? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. You know. <laughs> but uh, can she resist and will Blood Raina let her? That's yeah. the other thing. Right. So mm-hmm. Blood Raina yeah. was like, Octavia didn't want to leave. She was like, right. oh my God, please do this for me. And yeah. but Blood Raina, I feel like she's real comfortable with leading. Just yes. by the wave of her yeah. going. I just think that she, she settled the fuck into it. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Well, and and now we have two novitiate-ish kids. And I mean, now we have like Maddie and an actual Nightblood who who hid and fled from an apprenticeship under under somebody like Gaia. And then we have Ethan who isn't a Nightblood, um, but who is being sort of trained up by Gaia in very many ways as if he was. And so now we have like two murder children of closest to the same age i would think you know and some interesting questions about is maddie is maddie's picture in her mind of the octavia that she idolizes you know which is sky ripper which is like conclave octavia the like noble heroic warrior how is that picture of octavia maybe challenged by blood reina this whole different way scarier darker person 
You know, like, is Maddie going to be like, oh, my God, she's even more badass? Or is Maddie going to be like, oh, I thought that that, like, violent warlikeness was heroic and admirable in this kind of children's story context. And now I'm seeing it up close. And I'm like, I find you really creepy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? exactly. Like, so many people are talking about her having, like, hero worship and actually being maybe a stand-in for, like, stands. Mm-hmm. But I I immediately thought that she would be the opposite. She'd be like, oh, you are, you do not, not only do you not live up to what my mom or my big sister, I'm, that's the other thing. I don't see them as a mom's mom-daughter relationship. Mm-hmm. It's not it's not to me that's not what i'm seeing i'm seeing sister but anyway that's not what clark told me clark told me you're this great person and i'm meeting you and oh my god what is this like this is not what i expected i don't like this and so i'm i'm very much interested in seeing where that's gonna fall i don't Mm -hmm. i'm very 50 50. it could be either one yeah Mm -hmm. no me too i think i could easily see it going either way yeah but i think the two characters that we've really seen mythologizing Octavia in her absence, which is Maddie and Bellamy, neither of them, the the actual picture of who Octavia has actually become is a hundred thousand million miles away from their conception of her. And so they're both going to be in for quite a bit of a rude awakening (laughs) when they see what's actually happened. And I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> oh, <laughs> this is you. <laughs> that's that's a choice. <laughs> that is that is a look. That's oh, a I, lot of look. Yeah. <laughs> all over your forehead, huh? Okay. I mean, I'm not gonna judge. <laughs> cool. <laughs> we all, you know, we do what we gotta do to get by, right? Okay. A little blood on your forehead, sure. <laughs> All right. It's 1 a.m. and I've got to go to bed. Thank you so much. We covered everything. Yeah, I think we did. So thank you so much, Crystal, for joining us. It's been a blast having you. Thank you for inviting me. I've enjoyed this so thoroughly. I'm so glad. We were so happy to have you on. We are just, we we think you're wonderful and we just were excited to get a chance to like scream with you for four hours. Yes. Exactly. And I mean, come on. Screaming about the 100 for, I mean, the 100, oops, the 100. I know how people get mad. Um, Scream about the 100 for four hours. Are you kidding me? That's like, yeah. That's my Eden. That's my um, so we'll be back next week with, uh, 403, the title of which I forget. Oh, Sleeping Giant. Oh, Sleeping Giant. Yeah, Sleeping yes. Giant. Uh, yeah, back to Space Crew. Yes, yeah. indeed. And, um, I, I think hopefully some Balark something. Yes. Excellent. It's a super fun, I it's a so. super fun episode. Excellent. Very oh, yay. I'm, I'm excited. excited. Interesting and it's fun. And yeah. it's nowhere near as... Um, intense as this one. <laughs> the, we all could use the, the tone changes, I think, have actually been really what I like about this sort of bouncing from story to story to story is that we're not lingering for the like for three episodes in a row in this really bleak yeah. world. That yeah. we got like the really optimistic Eden storyline, then we got this very dark one, and now we're, we're gonna get what what looks from all of the previews and stuff like an action movie, mm-hmm. with them which I'm excited about. So yes, me too. um yeah, so we will be back next week to scream for another four hours, probably. About <laughs> Let's be real. This is who we are. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and thank you, Crystal, for coming on. And thank maybe you, we'll have you again before the end of the season. Thank you, Erin. Thank you, Claire. Yeah. Bye. Bye.